today I am speaking with Lawrence Krauss. Many of you know Lawrence's work. He is a well-known physicist and author. He regularly writes for The New Yorker. And he is also a famous atheist. He was in the film The Unbelievers with our partner in crime, Richard Dawkins. Lawrence does many different things. He runs the Origins Project at Arizona State University. He is the author of several books, and he has a new book out titled The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, where he tells the story of how we've come to understand the universe to the degree that we have. And he and I spoke about many things. There are not many conversations where you can get into the weeds of quantum mechanical experiment and then also talk about terrorism and nuclear war and Trump and things of that sort. So we cover a lot, and I would say if you're short on time, the last hour or so is probably the most important part. But I enjoyed all of it. Lawrence is fighting the war of ideas on many, many fronts, and so it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. And without any more preamble, I now bring you Lawrence Krauss. I am here with Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be with you virtually, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, we do. we're actually rarely in the same place physically. We're often on the same email thread, but I guess I last saw you at, at the um, Asilomar AI conference. That's right. Yeah, we were at a, uh, uh, that AI meeting together. That was last time. It's always pleasant, and uh, it's always pleasant to think of, you know, things that may destroy humanity. <laughs> yeah. The list is growing, it yeah, seems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I get to, you know, I'm I'm chairman of the board of the Bolton, the Atomic Scientists, and we, 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 we set the Doomsday Clock, but we had a symposium every year where we'd go into that. It used to be called the Doomsday Symposium, which was always cheery. We changed the title. Yeah, I, I actually want to get to that because I want, I want to talk about some of the threats. But yeah, so let, let's just start with the various games you're playing because you're doing many different things. You've obviously you do science. You're a theoretical physicist. You're an educator. You run the Origins Project at Arizona State University. You write books. You have a new book out that we will touch on. And That's uh, good. Yes. <laughs> there's definitely more that I want to talk about than, than sure. is in your book. And I never like these conversations to act as surrogates for interested readers actually buying your book and reading it. So you, this, there, there's no way that the book will be redundant on the basis of what we talk about here. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks. And I, I encourage people to buy your book because you are a, a fine and clear writer. And uh, this is a very interesting book. As you are. Anyway, yes. And uh, all of that, all of those recommendations were far more sincere than they may have sounded. <laughs> but you also, you write in The New Yorker, which is great. I mean, The New Yorker has been, frankly, fairly bad on science for a good long while. And it's really great to have your voice in there. You don't have to agree with me. I know you, you now are an employee of The New Yorker. No, no, I'm no, no. I, I think I'm surprised that I can get my voice. And I only, to make it clear, I'm only allowed online. I'm not allowed on the, hell. all my pieces are only appear online in The New Yorker. They don't appear in the hallowed real hard copy. You know, I didn't even know that because I, I read everything yeah, like that online now. So. Me too. I, I do too. But I want to make it clear in case people thought I was somehow more eminent than I am. <laughs> do you understand the basis of that decision? Is that yeah, actually... I think, I think uh, frankly, I think part of it is that there's a different culture for the online edit editorials and, there are, and, and work than there is in the, in the magazine. I think 
I sympathize to some extent with what you say about the science of the New Yorker. And uh, it's I wish wish there could be more science in there, because uh, one of the things we may get to and one of the things I, I push a lot because I believe in it is that science is part of our culture and we have to integrate it more more heavily. And that's part of the problems that we're experiencing now, in my opinion, politically, too. And so, you know, if, if to the extent that New Yorker is kind of a magazine of culture, the fact that science there, you know, there are profiles of scientists periodically, mm-hmm. but. But it's not, you know, it's not treated on the, as the same kind of, hey, interesting cultural aspect as as movies or, you know, literature or whatever. So it's, I wish it was. Yeah. Well, there's there's that problem. It's just that the problem of there not being enough science or science not being viewed as as sexy or as as culturally relevant as as the humanities. But there's also just the problem of scientific error and yeah. anti-science being propagated which is surprised the errors are always surprising because one thing i found about the new yorker and i'm probably jumping in away from where yeah. you wanted to go no, but, but i'm happy to but one of the things I've, I've found is that you know i write for them they edit more heavily and fact check more carefully than any any place i've ever written for mm. and so it, it is surprising in some sense that scientific error i mean pseudoscience and anti-science is different i mean they can have a slant yeah and there's a and that slant occurs a lot in in among certain people, especially in the humanities, for for various reasons, which you might get into, but so I can understand that. But it's sad when scientific error gets into. Yeah, and and then you you also do debates, as I occasionally do with religious crackpots of one flavor or another. So this is just a question about how you divide your time, because it's not even clear to me how much each of these boats you're rowing in gets your your weight. How would you describe what you do on a weekly or monthly basis. Yeah, well, it's it I wish I had a strategic plan and a uh, and I div, I did divide my time strategically. I don't. I tend to just sort of be doing something and and, and I like first of all, I like to juggle lots of things and I think it uh, it's I think it's basically because I'm frankly lazy. I think if I'm not occupied, I tend to do nothing. Hmm. And uh but I tend what I do is I tend to focus on one thing. You sometimes because I'm angry. I mean, sometimes because I get emotional about it if I'm writing or agree to do a debate or stuff. But um but I but I and then I'll move to something else. So, so I, if I'm excluding something, if I'm not doing science for a while, I, I kind of feel like a fraud. So I, uh, uh, so I, I just try and balance it. But it really, there's no real plan. I just do as many things as I can do because, um, uh, frankly, because I enjoy doing all of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, and and that's really a point that that I think is really important to stress that I do science like many scientists, not because I'm trying to save the world, but because I enjoy it. And the same reason I write and do other things, but also because in my own personal perspective, I think something is worth doing. If it takes time for something else, if I think it has some background importance, I think it's worth, I I, I do that. And and to some extent, maybe it's a kind of guilt also, frankly, Sam, in the sense that the the physics I do is very esoteric in general and quite quite abstract. And I think it's profoundly interesting because it addresses these fundamental questions about our existence. But, but from a, from, from the perspective of touching daily the lives of people or in an immediate way, improving their lives, it it doesn't. And so I think part of the reason I, I get involved, uh, politically and, 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 and socially is to some extent to make up for that aspect of my, of my life. Uh, uh, if you understand, Mm. uh, and and so I think that's why I jump around. But but yeah, I've a lot of hats and and sometimes too many. There's no doubt about it, especially too much travel. But I think uh, but what I try and do is to go from one thing to another intensively. And I don't know if you've had this, but you know it's true. I did just finish a book, and I find after the book is done, as I'm now I'm I'm talking about it, 
I have no I, I have no memory of writing it for the most part. And I, I wonder how the hell I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't seem to have time for anything else, right? Anything right now. And and so it's interesting. I think I think uh, book writing is kind of like having a baby in a way. You, you, if you remember what labor was all about and the whole thing, you probably wouldn't have a second one. And I think it's probably beneficial to forget the whole experience. Yeah, my problem is that I do remember what labor was all about, and I keep pushing off my book deadline. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've always thought you're wise, so there you go. I'm more impetuous. But anyway, uh, so I'm lucky. And I guess the, the point is I, I think pop probably because – Again, to be quite honest and frank, I think a number of these things uh, came over a long time of doing things with no notice for what I was doing. And so, therefore, it's hard to turn down things that I think are useful or important. Mm-hmm. And I'm w- and I really working on that to try and turn down. So it's hard to say no. So I often say yes to too many things, and then I just end up having to do them. Right. Well, so what do you think about the utility of doing debates of the sort that We've yeah. both done. I mean, I, I don't know how recently you've done one. I mean, do you think they're worth doing? Do you regret doing any of them? I I, I, I often regret them. Uh, I think. Look, I think the debate format is a very poor format. It's a it's a it's a rhetorical format. It's not really meant for education or information. It's it's really based on it's sort of smoke and mirrors, and so that from that perspective, I'd much rather have a conversation uh, or a dialogue than a than a than a debate. But I have found, as you you probably found the same thing, that it surprises me when after I've done a debate, like, why the heck did I do that? That people, I mean, you never do a debate to try and win, beat the person you're, or to try and convince the person you're debating. Who you're talking to is, of course, the broad middle. Mm-hmm. And particularly the people who, it's nice to have the fans on either side, I suppose, but the real people you talk to are the people who've never thought about the issue and who you think would be, swayed potentially by a smooth talking huckster and it's and so if you can reach those people who haven't really thought deeply about it and 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 influence them to start thinking about it um then that that then i think it's worthwhile and i've been surprised even the debates that i've afterwards gone and say "Ooh, i just had this sick feeling i really uh, awful why did i do that that people afterwards have said you know i watched that and that impacted my thinking in, in a, and, and and so I guess it's useful. The big problem is that there are people who want to debate people with a relatively high profile, say, because of course it, when the minute they're on stage with you, they get a validation Mm. that that they wouldn't have otherwise. And it's hard to know how to deal with that because you want, you don't want to validate them often. And Richard Dawkins has done this often. He'll refuse. He'll say, I refuse to even debate this person. And it's great then that a person has a, goes on stage and has an empty chair and all that. But the way I, I sometimes try and get around it, and it's very difficult to be the bad guy on stage. But there were one or two times where I think these people, you know, I don't mind debating people who I think are honestly in error, <laughs> mm. who, who believe what they say, and, and one can have a discussion with them about it. But the people that really upset me are the people you know are real hucksters who are just lying because they, they, they're try, they, they can, and they have a smooth stick. And they and and they want and they want to 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 sort of fool people. And those people, what what I've done in a number of debates, and it's not easy, is try is attack them, is basically point out how how they're they're lying. And mm-hmm. it's difficult to do, and because people are come to an event, they want to be people of goodwill, and they want it to be sort of uh, collegial in that sense. And but but sometimes I think it's important to expose that too. I was on, I I did three debates with this guy William Lane Craig in Australia that I really wouldn't have 
I didn't want to do. And it was and it was it was sponsored by a Christian large scale Christian group, which is why I decided to do it, because I thought here's a person who's not honest. I debated him as well. He's a, he really is just a professional Christian debater, and that is, that's what he does. Maybe and he, he wants does other be. things, but this seems to be what he does a lot of. And he and he and he and ex- exactly. And what he does is he tailors his notoriety to the people he debates. So he mm-hmm. wants to be at people so he can say, "Look, I debated X, Y, and Z." And uh, I, I actually originally agreed only if they wouldn't put it online because I, I just assumed that they would use it for that purpose. And and then there was a then they said, "Could we, could we?" film it for our own archival purposes. And they were very nice people. It was a really nice religious group, I should say this. They were really earnest. And they, I said, you've chosen the wrong person. I, I, I told them, I, I think you could, you could choose more honest people and we could have an interesting discussion about science and religion. Uh, but they, they did. And by the way, afterwards, I will tell you that they said to me, they agreed, they'd made a mistake. But what happened was uh, his people found out about the fact that things were videotaped and then said, I was censoring it. I didn't want the public to know mm-hmm. about it. So we put it all, it was just a typical kind of thing. But, but, uh, so I think those kind of things can be useful if you expose, cer- if you can expose certain people and not take them seriously. And the other thing, I guess the very first, one of the very first big debates I did was back and what got me into that sort of area maybe, uh, was in the early days when they were trying to introduce intelligent design in the classroom and the discovery Institute was just beginning its efforts to try and do that in, in 2000 or, or shortly after. Mm-hmm. And so the Ohio State School Board basically asked for a debate between these two guys from the Discovery Institute and me and, and Ken Miller, who you may know is yeah. a, a, a Catholic, uh, a religious Catholic evolutionary biologist whose texts are used in high schools. And, and it was like 2,000 people attended it as well as the school board. And uh, and it was really a very emotional event. But what I tried to say at that point was this is inappropriate because the problem with debates is it always makes it it makes it look like he said, she said it makes it look like there are two people with equally valid views who are discussing this. And it raises the profile of people sometimes whose views are nonsense. So I I just pointed out that if it was an appropriate panel There'd be 100,000 scientists on one side of the table and two, two people from a marginal religious uh, uh, lobbying group on the other. I, I think because the journalists do this, too. They always try and make it seem as if there's two sides to every story. And to some extent, a debate validates that because it, it makes it appear as if both sides are are um, are valid. So I won't I won't, for example, do debates that say, uh, you know, science versus creationism or, you know, because or evolution versus creationism, because the very premise of the title suggests they're at equal footing. Mm-hmm. What I will, what I would in the old days when I did more of this, those kind of debates, I would debate the question: Should creationism be taught in the class in science classrooms? And that that's a question that I would be ha- I would have to debate, but not, you know, which is right, evolution or creationism? Because there's no question of it. And I remember once I was doing debate in in uh, I think St. Louis with the at the time the head of the intelligence intelligent design network. Who, by the way, was one of those guys who earnestly believed what he was talking about. He was deluded, but he he was earnest. Yeah. And um, but the day before they changed the title to evolution versus, you know, creationism, which is right or something. And I and I said I would back out of it. And the St. Louis paper had a big story about it. They changed the title back again. But I think it's really important if we're going to debate that we try very carefully to make it clear what questions are worth discussing and which questions are not even worth raising. Right. Right. Yeah, I think there there are a variety of problems here because it's. I mean, you, you've delineated it pretty clearly, but there there are insincere performers where they, it's really 
you can't even believe that they believe what they say they believe, but they are pushing a certain view for whatever reason. So that's the, the ultimate case where the person you're talking to is really unreachable, and you just have to decide whether it's worth trying to embarrass this person publicly yeah. for some greater effect. It's always which reflects badly on you, by the way. Automatically, half the audience say, what a, what a, what a prick that guy is. Yeah, yeah. You know, anyway. But even when someone sincerely believes what they're espousing, it is, again, the, the optics are often weird because you, you're dignifying completely unjustifiable claims just by giving them a fair hearing in that context. And what's even worse about debates often, and this, this, is, this bothers me about political debates, is that the value of humor is so enormous that the, the person who gets a couple of laughs often wins, right? I mean, yeah, so like yeah. that bonds the audience. And so that's, yeah. and you know, you, <laughs> you and I actually occasionally get laughs. So that, that yeah. tends to work in our favor. But yeah, I know. I, can, I, I like to make jokes. So I, I, I benefit from that. And I mean, I'd make jokes anyway, just to amuse myself. But yeah, but it is unfair. It's not, yeah, it's it, it certainly isn't fair. It's it's as I say, it's smoke and mirrors. It's rhetorical. Debates are really entertainment. Right. But, you know, when I really do agree to I would think I now, as usual, I'm I've thought about the answer after I've said things. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I do agree to do debates now and it's rare, it's usually because it's an audience that I don't think ever gets to hear the other side. Yeah. So. I agreed to do this debate for this Christian organization. And I did, I recently did a debate with, um, for a Christian organization in, in Toronto with, with Stephen Meyer, who's another huckster from the discovery Institute. And, and, you know, he has a PhD, I think in philosophy, history of science or something. And, and he, and so he has the veneer of, of legitimacy and, uh, and, uh, and, and, but that was a Christian group. And then as you probably know, I've debated at least twice and one time in a very emotional way and in, in, in London an Islamic, group. Mm. And I did that because I, I really thought that it's no, you know, de- winning a debate isn't fun if, if you're really, I mean, it, if you're talking to people who sympathize with you already, it, 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 it may be good for your ego, but it's not particularly useful. But if you can read, if you can at least raise the questions and provoke people to think, and maybe there'll be two people in the audience who'd never even heard the counterpoint. If I recall, the best thing about that debate was your refusal to go on stage unless they integrated the audience because they had segregated women from men in a university audience. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, it's, it made a lot of, it, it got a lot of attention and I didn't attend it to, but I, yeah, I went, I did this and the group seemed earnest. People told me events that they're going to segregate. So I wrote to them and I said, you know, I'm not going to appear for this. They said, don't worry, they won't. And then I arrived in the auditorium and of course it was segregated and, and what, and then I went down to the, the hosts and I said, you told me it wouldn't be. Uh, and they said, oh, it's not, this is just suggestions. Right. So I went to the microphone and I said, it's just suggestions. You can sit wherever you want. And then two young men went to move into the, into the, se- the section that was listed for women and, and, and were about to be thrown out because of it. And, and then they called for me to sort of help them because the guys who were going to throw them out were pretty scary looking. And that's when, that's when that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And, I, and that's when I bent down and said, I'm, I, I'm not doing that. Uh, I, I can't. And then what happened, of course, is nowadays you can't do anything about someone filming it and uh someone in the audience had a camera and and it really as as my friend steve weinberg who's an atheist would say i was doing god's work because it turned out to have a really good purpose in the end so this person filmed it and and of course i knew while i was half hoping the debate wouldn't happen i knew they'd put too much emphasis and and, and publicity in it not to have it so they desegregated the group mm. 
And by the way, the people who were the most angry, and we can get to this, the people who were really upset were the were the, all the women in 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 their bags, and <laughs> uh, and uh, and 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 there was hate, hate, and one of them spoke up afterwards. But but what the good thing that happened from it uh, in the end, uh, you know, I was sort of surprised it got all this attention in all these British newspapers, is that the university it shouldn't. I mean, it was a secular. It's a university that should not be allowed, and the universities uh, learned about this and and basically said that banned that group from having events at, at, a, at a university. Mm. And, you know, when, when this, when a woman, when one of the women came up at the end, uh, there was a question and answer period and chastised me for, for forcing her to sit near men. I, 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 I said, this is a, you shouldn't have come. I said, this is a secular environment. You could see it online. If you're, I understand if you're uncomfortable or men, that's, that's, that's your business. And I sympathize with it. And, 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 and but you have to realize that you're living in a society that, that's a secular society. And, and therefore, if you choose to come to an event like this, you have to, or go to a baseball game, you might be subject to sit next to, sit next to men. And moreover, if you didn't like it, you could have moved. All the women in their bags. Let's hear about that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm making friends left, right, and center as we as we proceed. Anyway, let's touch your book briefly, only to uh, move on to more controversial topics. But your book is really this great history of the development of our understanding of the cosmos. At one point, you debunk the, the great man portrayal of science, this idea that you know, one lone genius goes into his room and comes out with a, a change in our scientific worldview. But you can't help but tell the story in terms of the contributions of the most famous scientists and the, yeah. you know, how they ha have changed our worldview really in these punctate ways. There are some cases where the, the caricature is true. I mean, Newton is pretty close to that, where he went into a, his room to avoid the plague for about 18 months and came out with calculus and the laws of motion and universal gravitation and the field of optics. And well, Yeah, well, Newton is an anomaly in human history. I mean, he, as a, as he, was, he, would not have, he would not have survived today. I mean, he was a crazy man. Say more about that. He, was, he, was, he would have been hospitalized. He spent very little time on physics. Most of the time, he was decoding secret messages from the Bible, mm. which he felt were given only to him, and the rest of his time doing alchemy. He was far more interested in those subjects. And I think I said the other day that, you know, if only he'd spent more time in physics, he could have been famous. <laughs> but he, but he, he was obsessively uh, solitary in many ways. He never, to, to the extent we know, he never was with a woman in his life or a man, as far as I know. And, uh, uh, he was a very a remarkably interesting character. And one of those people, you know, some of my friends who are distinguished physicists, we, we point out that when you read certain people's work, like, for example, Einstein, you can, who's obviously a great physicist, you can see, you can say to yourself, ah, I see how if I was thinking along those lines, I could have gotten to where he got. Mm. But there's some people like Newton that it's just a mystery. I mean, you know, it's just like, where did this come from? And he, he really was an anomaly. And and again, um, one of the things I, I, I try and point out there to, to get back to the religious thing a little bit is that people often point out to me, but say, they say, well, Newton was religious and, you know, Darwin initially was religious. And, and, and my point in counterpoint to that is that, of course, they were, because that's the only game in town at that time. The, the church was the, the National Science Foundation of the, of the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And, and you couldn't go to university. All universities were religious. So the fact that scientists were religious was not surprising as a product of their time. But he was much more obsessed with the secret messages of the Bible, 
which 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 um, and maybe Leonardo too was. But and he but anyway, he was a wild and, and crazy man. Also not a very nice man. I mean, he was an incredibly vindictive character. Yeah. His statement about I've only I've only, uh, you know, gotten uh, where I have by by standing on the shoulders of giants was was a vindictive statement because his one of his great competitors was a dwarf. Yeah. A hook, and, and, yeah. And yeah, and and. Uh, and of course, as you know, when later on, when he became, uh, well, I don't know if it was chancellor of the exchequer, but he was head of the, of, of the treasury. He loved hanging. One of his greatest joys was hanging uh, counterfeiters. Right. He loved, he went to everyone and he just enjoyed it. But so he was a, he was a, he was really a weird character, but, but not all, but, but, you know, that's unfortunately a stereotype that some people have that you have to be a solitary genius. And it's certainly not that way. And I do try in the book to show that things are baby steps. And while I reflected in terms of the people who've had perhaps in one way or another, the biggest impact, some of it is due to the fact that these people got it wrong. They actually had a huge impact on science by, by affecting the field and moving it in, in what ultimately turned out to be the wrong direction. And, and one of the reasons I, I call it the greatest story ever told, because it's, it's, it is a human story. It's a story full of twists and turns and crises. And, 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 and the great thing about science is well, first, that scientists are human, which is a little-known fact, and that, but that means that individual scientists are biased, they're prejudiced, they're pig-headed, they're, they're, you know, they're whatever, they're sexist, they or not, they're, you know, some of them may even be Republicans. But the science manages to drag scientists along. The science, the process of skeptical inquiry, basing your results on empirical evidence, testing, looking at many sources, that manages manages to take people, even when they're deluded, eventually in the right direction. And there's lots of times in the story where, where you want, I hope the reader, because I certainly felt like shaking these people and saying, you've got the right answer. It's right here. If you weren't so pigheaded and willing to just focus on this fad at the time uh, or, or something that interests you, it does one or the other, then you could have, the progress could have been made much more quickly. It is a, a human story. And it's, it's the greatest story because it isn't driven by just human imagination. It's mm. driven by nature. And nature keeps surprising us and taking us to places we literally would never have gone. And it is a it is this community process where sure people drive it, but the whole community is 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 affecting things. And sometimes the ideas come out of left field, and and it's that story that I find so so wonderful. And of course, the most important part of the title for me is the so far part because mm-hmm. um, unlike that other supposedly greatest story ever told, which was you know written down by. Iron Age peasants who didn't know the earth orbited the sun. This story changes and it gets better and tomorrow it'll be better than it is today. And it changes because we learn. And that's what's so, and, and it's surprising. Uh, and, and um, yeah, I almost, I was going to almost pull a Richard Dawkins and read a, read a quote from the book, but I won't. Um, uh, it's just what's, you, it seems to me you have a choice when looking at this human story in the universe. You either put us in the center because it makes you feel better, or you're willing to say the universe evolves it sort of independently of us. And if you do that, you, you check to see if your story's wrong and you also are willing to be surprised. And that's, that's what makes it to me so interesting. Yeah. Well, the crucial distinction between science and almost everything else, I guess you could broaden it to include rationality generally, but science is the most focused and, and disciplined version of that, certainly, is that the incentives are aligned in a way where it is self-purifying. I mean, everyone is trying to prove everyone else wrong. Yeah. You're constrained by the way the world is, however it is. And 
your professional reputations even improve if you prove yourself wrong? Well, and, and that's the hardest thing to do, as Feynman would say. The hardest, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And that's a lesson. I mean, there's lots of object lessons that I, I think, even though the book is really about the forefront of physics, and I think it's so fascinating, and the intellectual journey is really the greatest ones humans have taken. But but I think it has moral, or at least object lessons, not moral lessons, but object lessons for everyday life. And one is that the that you have to, the person you have to question the most is yourself, because it, you're the easiest person to delude. To delude, we all want to believe. Yeah, but the crucial difference here between, like, so this is it's often pointed out, as you said, that that scientists are merely human; they're biased, they succumb to wishful thinking, and there's even scientific fraud occasionally. Yeah, sure. But the antidote to that is always more science, better science, other scientists getting involved. That kind of self-purifying Self context of of, yeah. of scientific discourse. And you cannot say that about religion. You cannot say that about any backwater in the humanities where dogmatism is moving completely unconstrained by any truth testing. It's just, you know, the, the kind of a faddish set of ideas that get foisted on a generation and stay there. And there is no, there's no feedback mechanism. There's no well, testability yeah, of anything. It's the feedback that's important because I don't want to give the illusion, and I don't think you have, but some of the listeners may get it, that some of scientists are better. They're no, not. No, no. But it, but it's but it, it's really the fact that we are lucky enough to be able to rely on nature. That 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 you know, if you spout nonsense long enough, you come up with things where nature just proves you to be to be ridiculously wrong, and so so it's self-correcting because you have that tool, you know, and it's been a problem to some extent in physics in the last bunch of years where when I was, I talk about what I think is actually the most, one of the most exciting periods of physics. And it's a surprise, I think, for some people that most people think the period 1905 to 1925 in the 20th century was the greatest time because relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics. But I, as I, I point out, the period from 1955 to 1975, which is largely unheralded now, may in the future by historians of science be viewed as one of the most revolutionary periods of the 20th century because we went from knowing, you know, one force in nature to understanding three of the four forces and understanding the f fundamental mathematics that was behind that. But it, it occurred because of the fact that nature kept pushing people in the right direction, that that there was a lot of misconception and and and, uh, and other things, but experiments were driving things. And, and one of the concerns for some of us, and one of the reasons I'm labeled somewhat incorrectly as a critic of string theory hmm. is that there was a period in physics of, of almost 50 years 40 years where we weren't get, where accelerators weren't giving us information about about where where our theory should be going and as i used to like to say under under sensory deprivation you begin to hallucinate and that's fine i mean i get paid to hallucinate but what used to decide what was great physics was was it right <laughs> and it still should and it still does but for a while, what was decide making the decision was, is it elegant? Is it beautiful? Yeah. Is it complex? And many of us were concerned because those are the same kind of requirements in some areas of, say, um, literary deconstructionism that are that are similar, where where the internal complexity of the argument makes it seem as if it's somehow better. And, and that's a worry. And, and, and physics thrives, as all of science does, when experiment thrives and, it, and when it when it drives the, the discussion. And and of course we're we're in many ways living in a golden era because we're every time we open a new window on the universe, we we are surprised. Let's touch that topic briefly. Do you think that 
string theory is a, a dead end that has captured the attention of a generation of physicists, or, or are you no. still No, I don't, I don't think it's it? a dead end. No, I don't, well, I don't think it's a dead end. It's, a, it's, it's very well, string theory was very well motivated in, in, in where it came from. It just uh, had pretensions which haven't been met. And it hasn't been, it has not, I repeat, it has not been successful in doing what many people thought or claimed would be possible in the 1980s, that we would have a theory of, quote, everything, which even then was a poor name because it was a theory of very little. But, but it would, you know, it would have been of fundamental importance to have a theory that unified quantum gravity with quantum mechanics and the other forces. But it hasn't done that. And it hasn't demonstrated that it is, has any direct relevance in its original form to the real world. In fact, Strings aren't even the the, dom the this most significant thing in string theory anymore. So it's called M theory because mm -hmm. now these things called brains are important. Now all of that should not be argued against it in the sense that when you're doing physics at the forefront, it's difficult, it's complex, and what's most important to realize is you're often wrong. And these the people who've been working on it are very many very bravely trying to do the right thing. They're trying to understand the theory and get it to apply to the, the real world and see if it makes predictions that are useful. So it's well motivated, and and but the problem is it did get an incredible amount of hype, and indeed draw many people into the field when it was much more heat than light, in my opinion. Now, string theory mathematically has produced incredibly interesting bits of mathematics, which have not just been interesting to mathematicians. It has driven fields of mathematics forward mm. in profound ways. But the tools that have been developed in string theory have been used in other areas of physics to great effect to try and solve problems that could not be solved otherwise. So it's had utility. It's not, but what it hasn't done is demonstrate that its original purpose is, is, is validated, but that's okay because you, when you asked if I had a hope, I think most, you know, most ideas are wrong. That's why, you know, anyone could do it if it wasn't that way. And so uh, most of my ideas have been wrong and, and, you know, the nature, nature gets to choose. And so the likelihood that any proposed theory in advance is right is very small, and we and people should recognize that, especially when they read the papers, because the newspapers try and, and be largely at the fault of universities to some extent, who try to publicize work and therefore get grant funding or other things. You know, make every new little development sound like it's the next Einstein and it's revolutionary and it's changing everything, and and most of the time it's wrong. And what sort of upsets me is the not only do the newspapers get hooked into basically becoming public relations outlets for 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 the universities, but when it's shown to be wrong, it's not discussed later on. And then, and then people will later on read another article with sort of a new theory that disagrees with the other one. And, and the sense is that science has no objective reality. And that's a real problem. I, one of the things, I, there's a few things I try and talk about at length in the book. And one of them is the big misunderstanding that scientific revolutions do away with everything that went before them. And that's, that's exactly mm -hmm. wrong. That's exactly wrong. What, what's true today will, will be true in the future. What survives the test of experiment today will have to be a part of whatever theory there is in the future. And so, you know, that people now think, well, you know, everything we think today is going to be proved wrong, so why should I learn science? It's, and, and that's part of this problem, which I'm sure we'll get to, which is this alternative facts. It's like, well, it's just a bunch. It's going to be proved wrong. I have my own set of facts. You have your own set of facts. And what they don't realize is that science is not a set of facts. It's a process for discovering facts. And, and to, and to uh, I'll be a little self-serving, but I really, I really believe what I'm about to say. I think one of the things I, I think is important in my book that I try and do indirectly, at least, and in my lectures I've been lately, I've been doing it more directly, is that there's an object lesson that science, the process of science showed us that the universe we see is an illusion. 
It's a complete, at a fundamental scale, it's a complete illusion. And it cut through the, the layers of illusion by using this scientific method. Mm. And I think that is an essential tool that we need in our society today to cut through the illusion that we're seeing in, in, in the political world, to cut through the nonsense and garbage. Part of the problem is we, te we teach things like science in schools as if they're a bunch of facts that, or a bunch of things you have to memorize instead of teaching them, uh, teaching science as a process and driving students' inquiry with questions rather than answers. And I, so I think there's a real, if, if people ask me, how can we overcome the, the alternative propaganda we're seeing in Washington? Part of it, I think, has a very deep root in our educational system. And I think, I think while, of course, we need to resist and combat in a very real way and speak out and write and et cetera, I think we have to look at the educational system and hope that we can train children differently. Because when I was growing up, schools were repositories of information. But right now in my iPhone, I have more information than I could get in any school, but I also have more misinformation. Mm -hmm. And what we have to train students to do is to develop a filter. And for me, the scientific method is a wonderful filter. And that's the kind of thing we should be teaching them in school so that when they become adults, they're, they're able to deal with a world in which they're going to be barraged by much nonsense or maybe more nonsense than sense. And they have to be able to make sense of that. You just covered a lot there, which is really important. So I'm, I want to pick up on a few things you said. One problem is that some of the most memorable things to come out of the philosophy of science are misleading at best. And so people think, for instance, that as you said, in each generation, our scientific worldview is completely overturned without remainder, and nothing thought by your father or grandfather is any longer valid. So people have this picture of just wholesale changes in our understanding, and it's easy to see how they have that. I mean, you have people like Thomas Kuhn, who have who've more or less said that that's, what, yeah, that's yeah. how science proceeds, but you just have a the very different picture when you move from New Newtonian physics to relativity, say, and, and then quantum mechanics, and the, the fact that those theories are as yet imperfectly reconciled, and the thing that would reconcile them may look completely different as a, a structure. And so that it gives a picture of just radical change. And yet, as you said, the data, the, the data that Newtonian mechanics were conserving have to be conserved by the new theory. And I mean, so just to take one, this is an example I often go to because it's very easy for people to get. We could witness wholesale changes in our understanding of biology, say. Mm -hmm. But the idea that DNA has something to do with the, the, the physical basis of heredity is not up for grabs. Whatever new theory of molecular biology is coming down the pike, it will have to conserve what we know about DNA. The probability that DNA is somehow totally irrelevant is extraordinarily low. And if, in fact, that were realized, whatever new construal of you know, how we were wrong about DNA comes to us, it will have to conserve all of the data as we know them, right? And that's, there's very little room to move now, given how much data there is. Exactly. The point is that that our underlying pictures change tremendously, but that, so when we subsume a theory, you know, our underlying understanding of the universe does change, which is great. It's one of the things I celebrate in the book. And one of the things we all celebrate as scientists that we, that our, that, that our pictures change. And that's why I think, by the way, science is like art, music, and literature. The greatest benefit of science is to, is to force us to reflect upon and potentially change our view of our place in the cosmos. But as you say, DNA 
you know, DNA, what survived the test of experiment, it works. You can do experiments and you can show that it, 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 it is responsible for the transmission of information. And, and, and Newton's laws, a million years from now, when I have a theory, if there's a theory of quantum gravity, if I let go of a baseball, it's going to fall. It's going to be described by Newton's laws. Whatever we learn at the edges of science, which may at a fundamental level change how we think about the universe, nevertheless, doesn't make Newton not true. Newton is, will be true in now and a million years from now. And one of the great, what I spent a lot of time in the book showing is because I, I get a lot of, I get a lot of email from people and, and most of it. It always begins this way. Everything you think you know is wrong. Half of that refers to my politics, the other half to my science. And and then they say, you know, uh, I, everyone thinks I'm crazy, but everyone thought Einstein was crazy. Therefore, and they try and make that connection because they think Einstein did that. And one of the things I work really hard to do in the book is to show that Einstein did exactly the opposite. Yes, he revolutionized our understanding ultimately of space and time, although the really key revolution didn't really come from him. It later on came from his math teacher, Herman Minkowski. But what he did do was show the two pillars of physics, both of which had survived the test of experiment, and therefore both had to be true. They couldn't, you couldn't have a theory that violated. One came from Galileo and one came from Maxwell. They were the pillars of our modern theory of, of the physical universe, but they were inconsistent with each other. And what did he mm. do? He didn't throw one or the other out. He he managed to make them consistent because he realized they were they were both true. So whatever theory of nature you developed had to agree with both of them. And that was the that was the brilliance of Einstein was not to throw things out, but to rather recognize the beauty of what was of what worked and keep that and and force his his beliefs to conform to the evidence of reality. There's another point of confusion that often surrounds Einstein's work, which is this phrase everything is relative, yeah. right? Which is, which derives from the word relativity. Well, it should be, it should be called the theory of absolutes in the end. And it was really, as I say, it was his, his math teacher, Herman Minkowski, that showed that. It is true that Einstein re reconciled these two things by saying that, in fact, observers measure different things. And they measure different time differently and length differently, depending upon the relative state, relative state of motion. And that's remarkable and true. And that's where the word, you know, relativity comes from. The fact that your measurements of time and space are, are relative to your circumstances. But the beauty of the theory is an underlying theory showing that we live in a four-dimensional universe in which space and time are connected. And in the underlying theory, there, there are things that are absolutely conserved. In fact, there's something called a four-dimensional space-time length, which is invariant for all observers. That's the beautiful aspect of nature. We now understand that we live in a four-dimensional universe, but we don't see it. We see three-dimensional slices. It's part of what I, of the story of learning that the universe at its fundamental scale does not resemble what we see. What we see is a myopic slice of that. So in some mm -hmm. sense, the relativity is related to our myopia. Now, it's a real fact that we have a myopic that our well, it's a real fact that every measurement we make about the universe depends upon our circumstances. And Einstein was brilliant enough to realize that, that measurement is what determines reality for people. It's not what they think, but what they measure. And therefore, if two people measure different things, they're just as real for even if those two things are different. But the underlying reality shows that those two very different things are different sides of the same coin. And that's the other, in my mind, a much greater hallmark of, of progress in science than what Kuhn might have talked about. The real great hallmark of progress in science is when two things which on the surface seem very different are shown to be different reflections of exactly the same thing. Mm. And, and that, at least in physics, and it may not be so much in biology, 
Although, in, you know, that's what Darwin did, too, in a sense. So he showed that the diversity of life came from simple beginnings and in a very well-defined way. But, but it's the beautiful aspect of that discovering that these things that look very different are really the same. That is the hallmark that I try and talk about from, from Maxwell through Einstein and then Feynman and then right to the discovery of the Higgs particle. There's a, there's a, there's a beautiful continuity that you can ask when, when has progress been made? And pretty well universally, that's a, an indicator of it in my mind in physics. There is a tension, however, between a merely operational view of scientific theory and a realistic picture of the way the world is. So one thing that I think people find troubling is that it's easy to talk about these different ways of describing reality, Newtonian, relativistic, quantum mechanical. And if they all have their utility, you know, at certain speeds, at certain yeah. scales, but they all suggest a very different picture of what's actually going on. And in, like in quantum mechanics, you have the many worlds view, you have the Copenhagen view, you have, you have other views which suggest a, a radically different picture of what's going on, and yet you're using the same equations to make the same predictions and account for the same measurements. I mean, there's a yearning, and I think this yearning must be shared by most physicists, to get past the merely useful, merely instrumental, merely, yes, we, we have made a measurement, to what does reality actually look like? Doesn't it matter to you whether the truth is that there are a functionally infinite number of copies of ourselves having more or less identical conversations in parallel universes, or something that doesn't entail that at all, which conserves the data in the same way? Well, you know, it, that's a really good question. I think, I think a lot of it comes from, the, uh, in my opinion, a misunderstanding of scientific truth. There is no, science doesn't, science at proves absolutely what's false. It doesn't prove absolutely what's true. It, it, science presents models of reality, and those models get better. It, it, we, while we tend to often equate the model with reality, it's dangerous to do that because, it, because there's no scientific theory. And one thing string theory wanted to do was be different in this sense. But it's really important to point this out. There is no scientific theory that's absolutely true. Our best theory of nature right now is something called quantum electrodynamics. It, gives, it allows you to compare predictions to observations to 14 decimal places. There's nowhere else in, in all of science you can do that. But that theory only applies over some small scale, not that small, but a, some limited scale of, uh, of, of length and time in nature. And it breaks down and it has to be replaced by another theory, mm. the electroweak theory, which is that it unifies electromagnetism with this weak interaction. And so we have to realize that, that, that mathematics may be the language of nature, but it's a great way to model nature. And it works. That's why we use it. I mean, that's ultimately the result is the reason mathematics, we use mathematics is not that we necessarily haven't, uh, you know, we like it more than English, but it works and English doesn't. But there are certain areas where we have to recognize that that model takes us beyond, well beyond the things we can intuitively understand. And in those cases, we all create pictures for ourselves because we use them to guide us. And sometimes our intuition's better than others. And, you know, it's, that's happened with scientists too. Um, but things like quantum mechanics, for example, all of these different quote unquote interpretations, in my mind, suffer from the fact that what they're trying to do is explain a universe that at its fundamental scale is quantum mechanical in terms of a universe that we experience, which is classical. And any classical interpretation of quantum mechanics 
is going to be incorrect at some level. It's going to, as my late friend, Sidney Coleman, who was a brilliant physicist at Harvard, used to say, we shouldn't be talking about the interpretation of quantum mechanics. We should talk about the interpretation of classical mechanics. Because the quantum mechanics is the way the world works, as far as we can tell. Now, we may be wrong at some scale. Maybe quantum mechanics may be, break down, but no one's seen any place that that happens. And so the world really is quantum mechanical, and classical mechanics arises in some sense as this illusion, once again. And to try and impose this illusion on the fundamental world the way it may work is to always produce descriptions that, that, that seem crazy at some sense and are limited at some sense. And, and that's true, uh, not just for quantum mechanics, but that's, as I say, that's the reason we always have these myopic views. So I'm worried, of course, what, what I want to do is get a better picture of how nature works. But do I want to, but do I ever have the expectation that I'll have a complete understanding of how nature works? Not at this point, nor do I need it, nor do I need it. It's not so much the dissatisfaction that comes with incompleteness. I guess it's the dissatisfaction that comes with two equally valid, in the sense that they conserve the data, pictures that are totally irreconcilable. They're not irreconcilable in terms of measurements, because the measurements are the same, and they're not irreconcilable in terms of the math, because the math is the same. But the picture you can get from, so to take one example that you, you actually do at least act like you have a dog in this particular fight, the, the, the measurement problem, right? So, so people have traditionally made much of the fact in quantum mechanics that a measurement is what collapses the wave function and constrains reality. And, and a measurement is poorly defined in science. And a measurement has traditionally been taken to entail the conscious attention of a sentient being like a physicist. So you have people, and you, you, you name him, this is someone I've debated, Deepak Chopra, running <laughs> yeah. around saying that science has proven that your consciousness is at this moment in collaboration perpetually with the universe to define its character at the most basic level. And you can find physicists who have PhDs who will stand up and just sign off on his, on his physics. Oh, but, well, that, having a PhD doesn't mean anything. You can find people with PhDs who say the Earth is flat. People should realize that. That's really important, that you can always find a scientist to validate any idea. And by a scientist, I mean someone with a PhD, to validate any idea, how, regardless of how crazy. I totally take that point, but just to defend Chopra a little bit, which I'm yeah. not in the habit of doing, if you roll back the clock just a little bit and you go to the patriarchs of the discipline, people like Niels Bohr, yeah. he said many things that were in line. I mean, the, the whole Copenhagen interpretation originates there, right? There, there was a lot of mysticism creeping into physics at the there end, is, first there part. There is, there has been. And, and that once again, one needs to dissociate physicists from physics in a sense that one of the things I also object to, and not in your case, but often when I'm debating theologians to some extent, and sometimes philosophers, or, or when I'm having discussions, is they quote authority. They say, but look, Niels Bohr said this. And, and, but the point is, Neil, and Einstein said this, but the point is Einstein was wrong. <laughs> it's, it's fine that he said it, and he was a great physicist, but you know, people can be wrong. And I think that the things that, uh, you said a key point, that these two views that are utterly irreconcilable and utterly different, um, you know, both seem to apply, doesn't that bother me? Well, the point is, again, to use my Einstein example, is if they seem utterly irreconcilable, it's more likely, in my opinion, a product of our limited imagination and understanding. And if we had a better 
understanding, then those two seemingly irreconcilable pictures, which both seem to work, would be seen as not irreconcilable. But you're absolutely right that, well, I mean, Deepak, who I like may find of, although I think he's actually a very pleasant fellow um, when you talk to him. He's not always that pleasant. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. But but um, he certainly wants to be liked. He wants to be respected, which amazes me. And I, t- I often say to him, just stop saying what you're saying. It'll be a lot easier. But but And take off the rhinestone glasses. Yeah, yeah, maybe that. Okay. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to make a fashion statement. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure people can make fun of what I wear. But what it is, is people who misuse quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the most misused part of science because it seems the most mystical. And it seems to offer for people an out to everything they want in life. The, the new age hopes and dreams that people have that somehow are, they find are disappointing about the real universe. And this notion that consciousness plays a key role. I mean, the best counterexample is, is, is one at which I got from, a, I think, a friend of mine, Frank Wilczek, a physicist, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, as it turns out. If consciousness mattered in quantum mechanics, if it really was relevant in measurement, then whenever you read a scientific paper, you'd have to, the, 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 the writer would have to say what they, what they were thinking about that time. Were they thinking about sex? I mean, we'd have to integrally in every part of every scientific measurement paper, you'd have to have a discussion of what the conscious thoughts of the person doing the measurements were. And of course, it never enters into it at all. Consciousness and quantum mechanics are, uh, consciousness is something, I mean, it's more your area than mine, but in my opinion, it's something, the reason I do physics is because it's so much easier. Consciousness is so much more difficult. We don't have, uh, I don't know of good definition of consciousness. It's obviously a fascinating area and something we're trying to learn about. One of the reasons you and I were probably at the AI meeting is that maybe we'll learn from AI what consciousness is, but it's something that's ill-defined and certainly something that plays no role at this point in physics because physics is, is just so much more pedestrian. So then what is an observation from the point of view of one who is collapsing the wave function in quantum mechanical sense. Well, it's it's. I mean, you can call it collapse of the wave function. An observation, if you wish, is something that just whatever I'm going to say is going to be either jargon-filled or or limited because, of course, the the English can't correctly capture all all of the all of the mathematics. But it is something that destroys what we would call coherence. It's something so that the the weird thing about the quantum mechanical world is that many things are happening at the same time many contradictory things are happening at the same time things which shouldn't be possible are happening at the same time particles are spinning in many different directions at the same time and the actual state of the particle is what we call a coherent mathematical superposition of all of the different possible states that the particle could have actually lawrence i think we may be assuming too much of our listeners in terms of being aware of of this particular experimental result. So I I guess the best way to frame this is to talk about what is seemingly spooky about something like the double slit experiment, like that matter can behave differently when it's constrained, when you have information about how how it should be behaving. A a good point. And I spend, that's why I spend a fair amount of time in the double slit experiment, which was you know, at first proposed, developed by Thomas Young. I mean, what, some of these guys are amazing. You kind of wish you lived in a different era because Thomas Young helped decipher the Rosetta Stone. He was a doctor. He developed the, the concept of energy. I mean, these people just seem to do so much. And maybe... Gentleman science, yeah. Yeah, maybe it was low-hanging fruit. It was an easier time, one hopes. But they certainly seem to do so much more than we do now. Uh, but but the double slit experiment is something I spent a lot of time in the book about because it demonstrates most explicitly the nonsensical, the seemingly nonsensical nature 
of of quantum mechanics that so that a wave if i said a, a wave and many kids have done this in high school you put a wave uh, moving with these wave fronts that are parallel and you have it go through two slits you get this what's called an interference pattern and it's the reason why uh, concert halls have lots of things jutting out and and otherwise because in this interference pattern there's regions where say if the wave was a sound wave there'd be lots of sound and there are regions where there'd be no sound and if you didn't have uh, a well-designed concert hall there'd be tickets seats that you wouldn't want to pay for because you couldn't hear and so there's this interference pattern and it's very different if i if i took a machine gun at a at, towards a and, and was shooting at a wall but first shooting through a screen that had two slits clearly behind each of the two slits there'd be lots of holes in the wall where the bullets hit but if i sent waves through there in fact there'd be there'd be lots of different places where where in this case let's say where the wall would light up when a wave hit it there'd be a whole series of 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 regions where not just the two places behind the slit where the wall would be excited i just want to see if i can make that a little more explicit so, so you're you're picturing a wall with two openings in it two slits and if you have a wave of anything water light anything when it hits that wall and and encounters those slits the most of the wave is blocked but then at each slit you have an individual wave propagating beyond that, like two circular waves coming out of these two slits, which when those waves meet on the other side of the barrier, they will, they will interact in a way where, where, where their peaks align, they, they'll be higher, where their troughs and peaks cancel one another, they'll fall off, and you'll get a different pattern It's a beautiful pattern to right. see. And if you've ever been at a, a seashore near, you know, where, near boats, where there's, you can see that, and you can see the beautiful wave-like patterns where there's regular patterns of ridges of regions where the waves are, are high and where the water's calm. And it's really a very pretty pattern. And it's it's called an interference pattern. And okay, so that's big deal, fine. But, but that's true of light or, uh, let's stick to light because the light equalizes both sides of this experiment. Yeah. Okay, because light we, light we know is a wave. So light behaves that way and it's one of the many what was one of the experiments that Thomas Young did to argue that light was a wave. In fact, there were other experiments too. But but the, because you, when you put light through these slits, the slits have a very small because the wavelength of visible light is very small. And in order for this phenomenon to be observed, the slits have to be sort of comparable in size to the wavelength of light. But then you see these wonderful you know interference patterns. But the problem is light is made of particles, also in quantum mechanics, and we can we can make a source so weak that when it emits light, it actually emits a single particle, what we call a photon, okay? And we can do that now. And so now the question is, okay, but if photon is like a particle, then when I shoot it towards that, those two slits, then the pattern that appears should be like shooting bullets, right? Because the photon will go through one slit or the other. If it goes through one slit, you know, behind that slit, you'll see a light, a light stripe, or it goes through the other slit behind it, you'll see a light stripe. But that's not the pattern you see. You see an interference pattern, and you see an interference pattern even if you send one photon through at a time. And what that means is the only way you can understand that in the picture, if you think about you know classical world, is that the photon is going through both slits at the same time and interfering with itself as a wave. So it's doing yeah. as a wave. It's it is literally doing two things at the same time. It's going through both slits. Now you can ask you can say to yourself, that's crazy. I can prove that's not happening. Because I can, I can attach a photon detector at my slits, and my photon detector will click if the photon goes through one slit or another. And you say, okay, I'll do that experiment. And then you'll see that indeed only one detector will click at each time. 
the photon will go through one side or the other. And you'll say, aha, see? But then you'll look back and you'll see the pattern is different than it was before. It's now a pattern like bullets. So by the very act of measuring and, and fixing the, which slit the photon goes through in a measurement way, you change the pattern. You're changing the, the physical behavior of light by simply seeking certain information about the path the photon took through the apparatus. And that, and, and that seeking that information is what you might call a measurement. Yeah. But, but in particular, and that's why we use the word decoherence, it's a, it's a bit of jargon, but in some sense, to understand what the photon is doing before you do the measurement, or if you don't do the measurement, you have to assume that many different things are happening at the same time, and at the wall, the end result is, is the product of all of those things having happened at the same time. So it's what we call a coherent superposition. In the language of Richard Feynman, that's what we call the many paths interpretation of, of quantum mechanics. The photon is taking many different trajectories, and in the end, to figure out what happened, you have to account for all the different trajectories. But if you end that coherence, namely by making some measurement that definitely tells you the photon was here between A and B, obviously all those other trajectories are now not are now ruled out, and the end product of what you see is different. So a measurement effectively involves what we call decoherence. It involves forcing the system to not be a coherent superposition of many different possibilities, but, but really being in only one of those possibilities. That's why the classical world makes sense, because when we look at a ball or, or a clock or anything, it's always in a specific configuration. So it seems so crazy for us to think that at a fundamental level, Things are doing many different things at the same time. It seems absolutely insane. And it is because as, as Richard Dawkins would emphasize, we, what makes sense to us is what, you know, was useful to us in the Savannah to escape lions. And and it wasn't to learn how to do quantum mechanics. And, and so it's not surprising in some sense, it's surprising that as much of the world is comprehensible as it is. It's not surprising that at a fundamental level, the world is strange and seemingly mysterious and defies common sense because why should why should it validate our common sense when we're human beings who live at a certain scale and the universe is so much richer and and it's again i repeat i think this is a characteristic of science that it shares with in some sense the best social science but also with the humanities when you have a myopic view of what you how you think people should behave and then you go see a play and 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 it get illuminated, you know, homosexuality, say, illuminated in a new way, it opens your horizon. You realize that that what you thought was normal and natural is maybe not normal and natural. Similarly, when anthropologists uh, have gone into different societies and they say, you know, what we think is absolutely normal about what's 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 proper and appropriate and polite in that other society is viewed to be uh, the exact opposite. It opens our mind to realize that our our myopic conditions are just that. And the beauty of science is to get us beyond our myopia. I, I, I think I said in the book, and I, I do believe, and I once regretted saying it, that the purpose of science, one of the purposes of science, is to make us uncomfortable. Mm. Because if we're always comfortable, then we're never outside our comfort zone. We're never learning anything. But I do think that, again, is one of the purposes of great art, music, literature, and all of human intellectual inquiry at its best, which is all, in my mind, part of the greatest story. I share those intuitions about the the limits of our intuition and and the fact that we shouldn't be surprised when our intuitions are violated when we explore any of these regions that are in principle beyond 
the space where our intuitions were tuned up by evolution. As he, Back to Dawkins's point, we have not been constrained by reality in terms of our successful breeding and propagating ourselves over the generations by our ability to understand what's happening in, in, in the center of atoms or at the back of stars or you know anywhere else where physics attempts to take us. But the double slit experiment is squirrelier than that. Okay, tell me how. It's not just that the knowledge we're getting is counterintuitive. It's the fact that you're getting knowledge changes what the physical world is doing. Well, well, it's not getting knowledge. In this I mean, case, uh, measurement. It, well, yeah, but we're getting the measurement effect. The person doesn't have to be there. You can have the double slit experiment working with a Geiger counter or whatever you want and come back after the fact and, and look at the data. The, the actual apparatus isn't getting the knowledge. It's, it, what the apparatus is doing is interacting with the light. And that's the key point. It's not just some abstract way of thinking about it or imagining it somehow changes it. You actually have to interact with it. That's why these people like Deepak and other people who somehow say quantum mechanics tells us that thinking about the world changes it. It doesn't. You have to interact with the world to change it. And this measurement apparatus interacts with the light. It's not just, it's not, if you, there are ways, there are really fancy ways in quantum mechanics of actually manipulating light without, without interacting with it. And that's what sort of quantum mm -hmm. computers are kind of based on. But if you want to get what you, what you say is knowledge, it means you have to have an interaction. You have to do something rather drastic and rather, rather violent. But you're not interacting with it in such a way that your interaction is what seems to explain the change in its behavior. Well, no, I don't. Maybe, I mean, you'll probably get letters from some philosophers of quantum mechanics who might disagree. But no, I think it's, the, it's a central part, that interaction is a central part. It's what def defines what a measurement is. And that's why, that's why the measurement concept is in some sense um, difficult to quantify because you can, you know, there's certain gentle ways of interacting and, and they don't measure. <laughs> and, 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 and so it really is, it really is the process of interacting, of, of, of physically changing it that produces a change. It's not something subtle. I, I, that's very important. To flip this around, that, that's not the case with something like the uncertainty principle, right? Because the uncertainty principle is sometimes described as, this is Heisenberg's uncertainty yeah. principle, you can't know the position and momentum of a particle at the same time, or, or perfectly yeah. at the same time. The more you know about position, the less you know about momentum. Yeah. This is often described as a consequence of the fact that you have to interfere with the particle in order well, to know any of those things. Yeah, well, now, that, that's a good point. And that's and not Heisenberg, the case. It's not the case. And I, I don't know if Heisenberg was the first person to use that example, that indeed, you can, you can give pictorial examples to try and understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle by saying that, you know, if you want to measure something carefully, you have to use light of a very small wavelength. But light of a very small wavelength has a very high energy, so when it interacts, it'll change the energy or momentum of the system. And so it's kind of a nice heuristic argument, but you're right, it doesn't completely characterize it. It doesn't involve measurement. It's an inherent property of the system that there are there are certain quantities that do not take precise values at the same time. And and that's I tried to get out of the word measurement. Right. That do not do not occupy, even in the quantum mechanical world, precise values at the same time. So just to be clear about why I even brought that up. Uh, I, I know you're clear about it, but again, these are, these are, these are highfalutin issues, and we are audio only, so we, we have to keep our listeners along with us. Your listeners should know I'm waving my hands yeah. at every instant. <laughs> yes. So 
with the uncertainty principle, it's not a ma- matter that you're, you're looking requires that you, you meddle in such a way that you physically contaminate the system. It is a fundamental intrinsic property of the physical systems that... It is an essential property, and I use it. There's uncertainty about the more you know about momentum, the less you know about position. Well, what I'm, it's not, again, I, I don't like to use in the word no. It's a, it's a property that a system can be prepared in a, in a state of specific momentum. But if it is, then that quantum mechanically, but if it is, then its position will be spread out. Right. And, or, a, or a system can be prepared in a specific position, state where its position is well-defined. But if it is, its momentum will be spread out. And I actually try in the book to give some, to, I do some graphs that I actually try, I think, give a pretty good sort of heuristic understanding of where that comes from. But it's an essential part of actually the, one of the neatest parts of the modern world of physics. And and essential part of the story that I tell, because what I often say now is that is that quantum mechanics is 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 like Washington or corporate America, which in this case are the same thing. Now that that if you can't see it, anything goes. That because what the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says is, if I measure a system for a short enough time, then the energy of that system is uncertain. It means there's a that that mm-hmm. it's not well defined, and that means there may be not just one particle in there. There may be many particles, and that's why empty space is actually a boiling, bubbling brew of these what we call virtual particles. There, it's like embezzlement. I was just saying this last night. If a particle pops out of empty space, it has energy. Where did that energy come from? Well, it, it violates energy conservation for it to be there. But if it violates energy conservation by an amount smaller than you can measure, it's fine. So it's like embezzlement. It's like taking money out. As long as you get rid of it before anyone notices you've taken it out, it's fine. And that's why nature is at the smallest scales. Particles are popping in and out of existence, violating what you might think is energy conservation. But because they exist for such a short time, there's no physical way that they can violate energy conservation. And that, by the way, and we will probably won't get to it in this, in this podcast, is why it turns out electromagnetism works across the universe and the weak force doesn't because the photon is massless and it can carry an arbitrarily mm. small amount of energy so it can go from here to Alpha Centauri without without viola- being measur- measurably violating energy conservation. And that's why these quote-unquote virtual particles, which is the way we think of electromagnetism now, by the exchange of these quote-unquote virtual particles that would otherwise violate energy conservation, they can go right across the universe because they carry so little energy. It's an essential part of the way we understand right. nature right. and the fundamental forces. But my question is, why not, in the case of the double-slit experiment, say something more like that, which is, it's not that by performing a measurement, you are meddling with the light in such a way that you're changing the physical character of the system. It's just, it is, a, it is an intrinsic property of, of the behavior of light, which is if it is informationally constrained in such a way that it could be known what path it took, it behaves like a particle rather than a wave. And that, that doesn't entail consciousness. Neither entail consciousness, but I, I, I tried to be precise as much as I can in this regard. And I think the word I use was if you prepare a state in a state of definite momentum, mm. then its position will be spread out. If you prepare a state in, in a, where a, a particle or a system in where you know it, where its, its position is well-defined, then its momentum is spread out. The same is true. You see, what happens is when the wave comes in, it's in a state where, it, if you wish, it's prepared where, where its position is spread out. So it's in a, in a quantum mechanical state where its position isn't well-defined. Right. But then when I f- do a measurement on it, 
I change it into a state, into a different quantum mechanical state, if you wish, where its position is well-defined. So, so what I'm doing is changing the state the system is prepared in. And if I change the state the system is prepared in, it's not too surprising, perhaps, that you get different, different effects. Can you delay the measurement in such a way that you can set the, the system up so that you could make a measurement after the fact if you wanted to, but you need not? Yeah, well, that's what we do when we, when we, when in some sense, you know, yeah, that's having the Geiger counter there, but not turning it on or, or whatever. But when you do that, you see the system as it was prepared in the initial state. Right. You haven't changed it. What I'm, what I guess the point I'm trying to say to you is that you really, you know, there's a fundamental difference between just the statement of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which you're right, does not involve measurement at all. And the statement that measuring a particle produces a different effect because measuring a particle changes the quantum mechanical state of the system and it it changes it in a very in a way which if you wish is exactly in accord with the heisenberg uncertainty principle because the original wave a plane wave is the perfect example of a quantum mechanical system that's a defined to be in a de definite state of momentum hmm. which means it's spread out in space but when i right. make a measurement i change that you've gone after location yeah i, I i've changed it to a system where i've specified its location, and then in some sense, its its momentum is 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 uncertain. So I've actually I have to make that physical change, and it is true that that physical change may be observed and interpreted by us, but but there's some there's some physical system that's interfering with the with the that's changing the quantum mechanical state of the system, and I and I don't know any any counterexample to that. I think measurement is a violent act. And it's a violent act in quantum mechanics. It's a violent act. Well, it doesn't always have to be a violent act. That's what's wonderful. Because, for example, if the system was already in a state where its position was well well defined, and I measure its position, I haven't changed anything. Mm. So it can be that measurement doesn't change the system at all. But that just depends on what the initial state of the system was. And and so uh, it's what in the mathematics it's called an eigenstate. But it doesn't really matter. But so you could be lucky and make a measurement and not change the system. But, but to argue that measurement, um, that, that measurement is not, does not involve physically impacting and that, and, and, and that somehow this, this measurement problem is aside from the issue of physically interacting with the system, I, I, I think that's incorrect. Well, you know, I guess my question is, is it possible to set up this experiment where you could seek the information after the fact, you know, even years after the, the fact, right? And if, if you don't seek it, it behaves as a wave. If you do seek it, it behaves as a particle. Has that, has anything like that? Well, there are delayed, there are these, there, there are very sophisticated quantum mechanical experiments called delayed choice experiments. And, and, and they're very, they're very confusing uh, to talk about in language again and, and to interpret properly. The bottom line is that I think it's um, how can I say this in a way which is which is accurate and both clear, which is not, not so no, not so easy in this case. That your choice alone is not the powerful thing. It's the implementation of your choice that 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 determines the ultimate state of the system. And the implementation implementation of your choice requires some requires you to to have some physical interaction with the system at some level. And and there's no way to there's no way to change a quantum mechanical state without physically interacting with it. Mm. I stand by what I said. So it's so there are these delayed choice experiments which make it sound like 
you're 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 make, determining what the, how the system behaves by just having thought about it later where, afterwards and those things those things contribute to what i think is a confusion and allows people like deepak and others who are in fact i think worse than deepak people are like right the secret who who argue that this that somehow quantum mechanics validates their ridiculous notions about about uh, that allow you to become successful by changing reality by thinking about it and they get a lot of money from people and those are hucksters yeah yeah well i will rely on you to send me an email if i ever have to apologize to deepak okay so just just <laughs> let me let me know if i owe him an apology at any point <laughs> well yeah okay i mean you know <laughs> if something something happens in your in a uh, physics journal that i'm not going to notice let me know yeah yeah okay yeah i i will and 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 these and i should say i mean your questions are important ones because they're because the the way of interpreting quantum mechanics that's why there are philosophers who spend so much time in quantum mechanics is because the ways of interpreting the results of the experiment lead to force us to to reassess what we think is real quote unquote real and and i and maybe we have too much of a, a reliance on what we think of as real because as as i once again say even science just presents a model of the world and and the way it works is like Sherlock Holmes would say, which is to get rid of the stuff that's clearly wrong, and what still survives clearly has some semblance of reality. Right. But to but to claim that it is reality, I think is something that I, I mean, while while colloquially we might say it, but if scientists really think about what they're saying, I don't think they would claim that. So I want to get back to terrestrial reality. Oh yeah, boy, that was really of consequence. So we should leave that there. I mean, it's yeah. I, I guess what, what, just one additional point to make that cancels the people's interest in things like the secret, which is clearly consciousness is not defining reality at that kind of macro scale. I mean, if, if everything had to be observed by an outside observer to be real at the scale of at which we're having this conversation, well, then, you know, I, I would require someone else to come in this room and look at me now in order to collapse my wave function to make me well, real, right? I, I argue to keep back, to me, a more fundamental thing. We are made, as I've often said, every atom in our body came from stars that exploded, and, 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 and we, we have them to thank for being here. And, and, but the stars, the atoms, the, the heavy nuclei that were created in stars were, were created well before the Earth formed. Yeah. And before there was any life on Earth, and those, and 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 so all those physical processes had to happen for us to be here. And and there, and unless, of course, you may argue there were other consciousnesses in the universe, but let's ignore that. There was certainly no need for consciousness to be there. And we, and there was no human, animal, prokaryote, or eukaryote consciousness on Earth because Earth wasn't even there right. when all the particles in our body were assembled and made in the form that allowed us allows us to live. Yeah, except from Deepak's side, you're, you're begging the question, he's going to put consciousness at the beginning of all that, that, observing that whole process as an intrinsic yeah, of, property of, of reality. Yeah, I, I will. And, yeah. and, and what I say is he, he's entitled to do it, but it doesn't have, but, but what, what he, and it's fine for him to say that. What's not good for him to say is that physics validates that view. So it's all right to say, I mean, that's what a religious view is, right? That there's some consciousness at the, at the beginning of time that somehow determined why the, that's the deistic view, this sort of kinder, gentler religion, that somehow consciousness Im impacted upon the creation of the universe. And, and, and neither you nor I could disprove that, although there's no evidence of it. But it's what, what isn't correct to say is that physics validates that notion. So... Again, now slamming into terrestrial reality hard. Okay. Physics validates the notion that there is an incredible amount of energy inside the atom that can be unleashed through yes. with the appropriate detonations. And uh, as you said at the beginning, you 
are on the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which adjusts the doomsday clock every few years. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it is closer now to midnight than it has been at any point except one. I think, I think it was like 1953 that we had a yeah. worse moment, but now is the second worst. Just say a little about what goes into that conversation that gets the, the, the minute hand to move. And are, is it just the prospect of global nuclear catastrophe, or is it, is it every other existential threat that we are talking about at any current period? Well, it, it is now. I mean, it's, as you can imagine, it's a difficult and to some extent, obviously, subjective conversation it, we have. And it's amazing we come to consensus every year. I've been chairman of the board of sponsors of Bolton for maybe 10 years. And, and, but what has changed when it was created, and Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer created it to alert the public to the dangers of nuclear war. And the Doomsday Clock is a beautiful graphic that for one day, year at least, when we set it, gets a lot of attention and causes people to think about an existential threat, which is nuclear war, which for most of the time people ignore. They really do. Yeah. We become complacent. But what we decided um, certainly to do consciously, maybe a decade ago, when I, around the time I became chair, was to recognize that there are other potential existential threats that need to be considered if we're seriously thinking about human civilization. They're not on the same scale as nuclear war in the same way. One of them is climate change. Climate change isn't going to, isn't likely to wipe out all of humanity in an instant as nuclear war certainly could. But what climate change is capable of doing is changing what we mean by modern civilization on the planet globally um, and producing so global sociopolitical disruption in a, in, so, in a way that, that will change what we mean by civilization perhaps. Okay. Maybe. So, and it's, a, and it's also, the, the other threats, by the way, are, that we look at are not, there's also the threat that an asteroid could, could hit the earth, but those, we're looking at the, the, the human-made, I was going to say man-made, but the human-made threats, so the mm -hmm. ones that come from technology. Right. So, so climate change is one that we've incorporated, and, and another, which we've started to incorporate, and this year, for the first time, when, I, when we announced it, as I pointed out, it's the first time that it actually, in our minds, had an impact on the actual value of the clock is another emerging technology, which is artificial intelligence and particularly cyber, the cyber world. Because of course, that also presents a potential existential threat as some people are, you know, like some people publicly say they think it's the biggest, you know, biggest one. I, I'm not necessarily in that, in that mode, but, but there's no doubt that the development of art, of, of, of intelligent machines will change the way we live. And in my mind, it could go in many different directions, good as well as bad. But but what we pointed out is that it affected our decision in this case because of the way in which cyber warfare and hacking was potentially undermining confidence in democracy. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, to the extent that democracy is a central part of what we view in, uh, as, as a key part of modern civilization, at least in the West, was therefore important. And we viewed the fact that, that there was a, a, a loss of confidence in the, in the democratic process during this election as one of the factors that concerned us. Um, the other factors was, were specifically, and, and let, let me step back and say, you, you pointed out as I actually, I think I did when we introduced it, that this is the closest to midnight it's been in 65 years or something. Well, that's a true statement. But to be fair, I think it's more important to realize that the absolute value of the clock at any time is less important than the derivative, the direction it's going. Mm -hmm. Because the direction it's going is the message we're trying to tell people. 
And what we said is that the direction is going closer to midnight. We only moved to 30 seconds because we said one of the reasons that we're moving it is that the president of the United States is making statements about nuclear weapons that are outrageous and terrifying. The incumbent president, at that time he wasn't yet president, but an individual who was about to be president of the United States was making statements which were extremely dangerous. At the same time, he's not the only person. Putin was making state saber-rattling statements that were also dangerous. Mm. There were other factors like North Korea as well. And one of the reasons we moved at only 30 seconds was we try not to respond to individual events. In, we try to look at the global picture. And one of the things we said is, look, this person is not yet in office. There are statements that have been made and about both nuclear weapons and the other thing was climate change. We said the, the governing party in what is potentially arguably the, the strongest or whatever, how you want to say it, country in the world, the governing party denies science. Yeah. And so that was a great concern. But it, those were words. And we said actions speak louder than words. But words matter, especially when they come from a person who's about to be president. And we said we are concerned by those words because they, they could be harbingers of actions. And what we really said and what I really and this comes back to almost takes us full circle, which is that what we think we really want to tell the public is that they are the, if, if they're concerned about their future, they have to take their future into their own hands. That namely that governments and, and not just our government, other other governments are, are are not going to deal with nuclear weapons or climate change if people don't protest, if people don't raise their voices and demonstrate their concern. Because even in our democracy, which right now is looks pretty fragile, it is still true that people, even if they may not care about what's good or bad for the country, they still care about being reelected. Mm. And if the public, and there have been times in our history when they're having to do with nuclear weapons and also racism and Vietnam and other, if the public demonstrates that they're not, that they won't tolerate it anymore, then it'll have an effect. And so the net thing we were saying is the world is getting more dangerous in part because the leaders of the world are not, are not caretaking as they should. And they're being negligent. And, and we want, the public needs to first understand the problems, which is so it's education once again, and then needs to demonstrate their, that they're not, that they're not complacent. Hmm. This complacency issue is an additional scary fact about our situation, because I, I think you said at the beginning here on this topic that people have more or less forgotten about the threat of nuclear war. And the Cold War has been behind us for the longest time until yeah. suddenly now. And it seems like there's no threat. You, we, you and I used to grow up in a time, you're younger than me, but not that much younger, uh, where, at a time where, where, at least I remember, there were, you know, there were 50,000 nuclear weapons. And, yeah, and even more ridiculously, people would do these, these, these things in school where they'd hide under their desks, you know, to protect yeah. them from nuclear war and all that. Sorry. But anyway, go on. Yeah, those were strong desks. Yeah. So as you say, the, these nuclear weapons still exist. Not fifty thousand, but uh, how, how many? What's the current number? That's you know? the, that's what people don't realize. That's why we want to educate them. The, just between the two superpowers, there's probably five thousand nuclear weapons, maybe close to ten thousand nuclear weapons. We have five thousand nuclear weapons. Mm. The Soviets probably have five thousand. On on active status, there's you know between a thousand and fifteen hundred on each side of our sides, and which may not sound dangerous, but of course a small fraction of that would destroy. Yeah, yeah. it's a completely moreover, redundant. Yes, what people don't realize, it's worse than redundant. The policies. Have make no sense. There's no strategic utility for them. 
because right. we're not we don't we're not in the world of mutually assured destruction necessarily more and the real threats are not of nuclear threats are probably not mutually assured destruction they're terror they're, anyway we can go into those but the uh, but the thing is what people don't realize is that are of those thousand a significant fraction of our weapons are on alert status essentially launch on warning yeah which which made sense maybe in a world where we were expecting incoming 20,000 nuclear weapons and there wasn't you know there wasn't time for anyone to act before the world was obliterated or our, our country is obliterated but in the modern world there's no rational need all it does is encourage the possibility of a catastrophic error and Eric Schlosser and others have written great books yeah <laughs> delineating the, the, how close we've come so many times. It's amazing. Yeah. If well, you think let's about it. recommend that book explicitly here. So Eric Schlosser, the journalist, wrote a book called Command and Control, which is absolutely harrowing. And there's a, a documentary that recently came out on PBS by the same name, which it focuses on a specific accident at a, a silo in, uh, I think it's Arkansas, which just shows you just how haywire things can go based on the, the humble dropping of a, a very large socket wrench, right? Like a, the, yeah. the, the guy's yeah. performing a, a maintenance and this 20-pound wrench falls into the silo and ricochets off the side of it in such a way as to perfectly puncture the fuel tank. And then you hear a lot about the ensuing chaos. But the shocking thing is that the fact that we have not annihilated ourselves or at least killed tens of millions in a single day, is due to an extraordinary amount of dumb luck. And when you hear the details, including things like, we have dropped 20 megaton bombs on ourselves, and two yeah. of three safeties have failed, and the final safety that didn't fail had all of the solidity of like a mechanical toggle switch, right? That had it been yeah. in a different position, North Carolina would have been, <laughs> much of it would have been obliterated. It's just unbelievable that this is the situation we're in. And the technology that is stewarding our current missiles, I mean, we're talking about floppy disk drives and, I mean, just the most antiquated systems you can imagine. And we're, we're still on high alert. I mean, so, and, we, and the, who knows what the Russians are up to, right? I mean, if, if it's exactly. this bad on our side, imagine what it is in Russia. Exactly. And in fact, there's one of the more harrowing examples for me is, a, is an example from Russia. Of the, one, uh, someone we actually wanted to nominate for the Nobel Peace Prize, because unlike many people who win the Nobel Peace Prize, he actually saved millions of lives. He, um, he was working in a, he was in a missile silo, a Russian missile silo, and there was a false positive. There was a signal coming that it looked like a missile was launched from the United States. And then a minute later, another missile was launched. And then a minute later, another missile launched. And he got the order to launch his missiles. Hmm. And he disobeyed that order. Yeah. And, and then within minutes, of course, they discovered there was a computer glitch. But had he not done that, the world would be in a very different place. And, and it's amazing. It's that kind of thing. I mean, that kind of and happily, he, his, you know, you might think he was he was killed for that, but he wasn't in the end. He was he was pensioned off. But but that kind of um, that kind of act, we, we need we can't rely on that kind of accidental good good judgment to save the world and and but just i mean just to step back for a second we have put ourselves in this situation where based on the crassest political processes we are now perpetually under this sword of damocles of our own devising yeah yeah that's so mistake prone and now as you say with with the dominance of of cyber reality in our lives yeah. and, the, and the capacity for for misinformation to spread and for you know our early warning systems to be hacked 
the prospect of, of misinformation triggering this system of self-annihilation that we have built and, 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 and maintained and barely maintained, it's insane that no one's thinking about this or I mean, no, one, no, one, no one in the public is thinking about this. Well, people, well, people, <laughs> well, that's exactly, that's the public. There are people thinking about it. And I will say, again, to promote, not really promote, but to, uh, uh, my Origins Project, which I'm very proud of, and you've, you've been at some of our events, we 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 looked at we did an event on AI recently, but we actually are planning in collaboration with the Bolton and a foundation to look at exactly the relationship between cyber and nuclear issues. We'll probably run an event, both a public event and a and a rather high level study group on just that because I think it's what's surprising is that we don't mm. those those two communities don't speak together as much as you think, but there is a real concern, right, with with cyber hacking. What can you do to make this this happen? And 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 you're right that that the public needs to be concerned one of, but but let me point out one of the arguments that ma- that's made is well we need to do a 1 trillion dollar upgrade of our nuclear weapons uh systems in order to make them you know better well at first more accurate and maybe 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 update the technology but what's amazing is that you it begs the question of wouldn't it be much simpler <laughs> since since the, the system is just a recipe for disaster to get rid of, mm. of, of the, of the yeah. largest part of it, saving a huge amount of money, reducing the risks overall of, of, of having a catastrophe and leading to a saner world. So rather than spend a trillion dollars and you know, have a system that inevitably increases the risks of use, uh, why not simply get rid of most of it? And you know, ultimately, it would be great to have a world where we get rid of all of it, and there are people who've advocated that. But we don't need even a thousand weapons. We don't even need a hundred weapons, especially if our major, our ma- apparently our major concerns are countries that ha- that have very few weapons. Hmm. And in fact, are, we have concerns of a country that have no weapons. I mean, this this whole this whole concern about Iran, which was happily it doesn't have weapons because we acted rationally, which was diplomatically and not militarily. Um, and 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 I and and so our whole we are actually violating. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we're apparently signatories of. Okay, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed by most countries, except for the obvious ones: India and Israel, and 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 Pakistan, and 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 North Korea. I guess I admit, uh, yeah, I don't. They may have signed it once, but anyway, certainly is Israel, India, Pakistan, those, and we we sort of view them as outliers because they didn't sign it. We are violating it because one of the things it said is we're trying to stop proliferation so that new countries do not gain access to. To nuclear weapons, but one of the requirements was that the nuclear countries hmm. work as actively as possible to disarm, and that we are not doing that in any way, shape, or form. Moreover, we're sending a signal to other countries. You know, people react by the signals we send. It's the kind of thing that you're you're an expert on, and we're sending signals to countries that we value nuclear yeah. weapons. That having nuclear weapons makes a difference, and and if we have those send those signals. It's irrational for those countries not to want to possess. Oh, yeah. Well, but just look at the fact that we can't do anything about North Korea or Pakistan because they have nukes. I mean, we, it's, it's yeah. proof positive that having nukes changes your status. Yeah, and we're you know, and we're right now we're talking about you know bombing Syria. I just saw got a note today that that I mean moments ago that that's being considered, but also of course Iran, Iran, uh, and and so what messages are we sending? We're sending the messages not just that you know, that, that it means something to have nukes, but you know what? We think it means something for us to have nukes. So we're going to build better nukes and new nukes because, and the only reason that can be is if we want to use them, right? 
But again, it, 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 it's not just a message. It in fact, does the destructive capacity of these bombs is so astonishing. And, and if, you, if you haven't looked at video of nuclear blasts in the last decade, go on YouTube and just look at some of the biggest explosions ever filmed. It is, and I'm obviously, I'm not saying this to you, Lawrence, I'm talking to our listeners. It, I, mean, I recently did this and I was startled to realize as I was looking at this footage that I, I hadn't looked at it in years and years, yeah, right? And it's, it's, a, it's just a, as a meditation exercise. Just try to get a, an intuitive sense of what you're seeing here and map it onto the city where you live. It's breathtaking on every level, you know, morally, aesthetically. I mean, it's, it's strangely beautiful, too, which is also weird. Yeah. yeah. You know? Nature. Nature is both terrifying and beautiful in many ways. And it's a natural, I mean, whether you like it or not, the nuclear weapons represent an, a natural phenomena that is remarkable. And and it's the phenomena that makes our life possible inside the sun, uh, but it's also terrifying. And the idea that, that this could be triggered by accident or error is one thing that we should find absolutely intolerable. And then there's this added layer, which, which we now confront in a way that I wasn't expecting we would ever confront it again, which is you could have people in charge of your government or other nuclear powers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who are so carefree in their attitude toward the risks here and so and and even so open-minded oh, about the prospect of using these weapons yeah. uh, which we have in the case of Trump that it's an enormous problem to to think about how we we walk back from the precipice here because well, again, here, here's you, what, here's... You, you you can't ignore is that in our current world it matters whether you're a nuclear power y yeah yeah it it does, but you know what what matters is we treat nuclear policy in a different way. I wrote a piece on, on this in New Yorker once, and and it's and because of Trump, there's a discussion, but I don't think it's going to happen. But many people also don't realize, and this is terrifying to people. It doesn't matter who's president. There are no checks on the president. The president can order nuclear weapons to be used, and there's no no one. There's no procedure for anyone, for Congress, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or anyone. To, to to circumvent that order, except maybe someone on the ground. And many of us just found out about that in the, with the the inauguration of Trump, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, like exactly. We thought that there was some sensible process by which you could constrain the impulse of of some president who's grown demented or had a stroke or just is drunk. I mean, I think I think there actually is a story about Nixon when he was yeah, drinking yeah. a lot during Watergate yeah. that. Yeah. That some some admiral says, listen, if the president says anything to you yeah. about, uh, you know, the codes, you, you're going to call me and, and yeah. before you do anything. Yeah. You know, you have to openly disobey. And, and, and look, I mean, again, it wasn't crazy. There was a reason claimed reason for this, which was, again, mutually assured destruction. When Time, there were 50,000 yeah. nuclear we weapons, then then, yeah, you got 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And and so but we don't live in that world anymore. Where where that's or maybe we maybe we still do in some sense, but the public should be aware of it and decide which risk they'd rather they'd rather face. To me, that's the whole point of science as an as a as a basis for public policy is that scientists shouldn't make public policy. But the empirical evidence and the results of science should form the basis of public policy. So the public should be informed. You know, they they could just we, the country decide to do nothing about climate change, but we shouldn't lie about it. We should say, OK. 
you know, this is the world we're going to create, but we, for one reason or another, we want to make money or we want to want to do this or that. That's okay. If that the public, that's part of democracy, but the public needs to know these things about nuclear weapons. And that's one of the reasons things like the doomsday clock, which hopefully can alert the public about that and about the silliness, about the fact that talking about strategic nuclear policy is an almost an oxymoron because mm. there's no place where nuclear weapons using them makes sense. And moreover, other things that have been ridiculous that I've written about for a long time, that missile defense, we, we, we spent over a trillion dollars over the last 30 or 40 years on missile defense. We had, it doesn't exist. Actually, I want to ask you about that. So uh, there have been successful uses of it in Israel against the, you know, the Iraqi scuds. Well, you know, even those, if you read some of the, some of the real data, suggest that the claimed successes are far, far exceed the actual, the actual successes. So do you not put much hope in the prospects of building viable missile defense 10, 20, 30 years? No, okay. there's a, and there's good reasons for it. First of all, you know, unlike a Scud, for example, a nuclear weapon is different. So there's really basic physics arguments. In general, when it comes to missile, the, all weapon systems, offense is cheaper than defense. Yeah. So let's say we did build a missile defense system that was 50% of, uh, efficient which we don't have, okay? But let's say we did. I'm talking about nuclear ballistic missile defense, okay? Then, so then you have, a, that. what that means is that for every two missiles you send, um, one will be intercepted. But b once you've figured out how to build nuclear weapons, it's a lot cheaper to build two nuclear weapons instead of one. Yeah. Also, you can build, you can build warheads that fragment into 20 separate... Well, that, that's the next stage. No, no, our missile defense system has never been tested against a realistic threat. It's failed miserably in many cases against unrealistic threats. So namely, sometimes it succeeds when the missile knows, when the missile defense system is told where the missile's coming from and when it was launched, then boy, it can intercept it. Hmm. But, but, but it's never been tested against realistic threats. And I, I used to say when George Bush was talking about in 2004, he said, we're gonna build a missile defense system. We're gonna, we're gonna um, deploy it next year that you know will be 90% efficient or something. And it turned out that 50% of the American public thought we already had a missile defense. And what I said at the time was, we should have kept it that way. We just, just say we have it. It's a lot cheaper. It's just as efficient. It's just as effective as a, as a non-working and less threatening because it's less proliferating. And, 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 and so people have looked and physicists have done many studies of different ways of defending against early stage missiles. And, and um, so that ultimately, there's no way to have a anything that Ronald Reagan thought of as this Star Wars barrier against nuclear missiles, because because the, the, you can always build offensive systems that are cheaper and can out can avoid defenses. Yes, you can make the enemy spend more money in certain sense, but uh, but it's it, it's it's largely and strategically a waste of money, and it is inherently destabilizing mm -hmm. because what it does is encourage countries to simply create more nuclear weapons because. Even if we had a 90% efficient system, you know, the 10% is a disaster. Yeah. Well, not just, yeah, but you can ask how likely it is. Uh, is it how many weapons do you have to go send before you're guaranteed to get uh, to have a, 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 a successful strike? And it's something like five, four or five. So you build, yeah. instead of having 10 weapons, you have 50 weapons. Right. And, and you're, you have the same, same aggressive uh, uh, possible impact on this country. And so uh, if you think about the logic of that, you know, it sounds nice. It appeals like many things. It sounds nice to what pe we all want to believe. And, and again, I get back to, to the, 
to to that's what science is all about. We want to believe that these things are possible. We see them in Star Wars movies, and it would be nice to believe them, but we have to we have to be skeptical of ourselves. Yeah. Well, on that point, uh, I see we're coming up on the two hour mark, but I yeah. I want to touch on Trump because I, okay. I find this, and I know you and I are going to fully agree about his character morally and and intellectually, yeah. but I I am now perpetually living in this situation where seemingly smart, well-intentioned people who agree with, who are interested in, in the conversation we just had, right, who are, who are listeners of this podcast, who want to know about science, who are atheists, who basically love every noise that comes out of your mouth on the topic of science versus religion. When we get to the topic of Trump, and now it's, you know, for many podcasts running now, for me, it's always sort of humming in the background so people yeah, know sure. they're going to be ambushed in an unpleasant way on this topic. But when we land on Trump, the political intuitions divide so radically that you and I will now disqualify our, ourselves on every other conceivable topic because we'll, we are so wrong about Trump. Yeah. And I, there's something very crazy-making about this because... I really feel like we're living in a, a society now where something like half the people are failing a test of moral intelligence, Ooh, for lack of okay. a better word, which, and it's an extraordinarily easy test. Like, this is not a hard one. This is whether there's something wrong with lying at a scale that we have never seen before in our political life, whether there's something wrong with having promoted a person to the highest office in the land who not only doesn't show any evidence of having the competence that you would need yeah. for the job, but shows no interest in acquiring that competence and says and says things like he's the smartest person who's ever lived, essentially. Yeah. Right. So like there's a yeah. there's a level there's a of delusion. Human, yeah, there's a level of intellectual laziness, which we saw in, in Bush, but Bush didn't never made the pretense. That that's one of the major differences. Bush, you know, was uninterested intellectually, not curious in many things, but he never made the pretense of being the smartest person who ever lived. And and nor nor would he manufacture misinformation and, and well, conspiracy sometimes. theory to no, the, that, uh, at this at, level. Not the level. It's just the the velocity of of the line, and it's just that. I mean, the thing that I've said this before, but people don't seem to get how at least people on this side don't seem to get what what a crucial piece this is that. It's not just the line, because normal political line, normal line in any context, at least pays lip service to the importance of truth. Like, if I'm going to lie to you now, I'm going to lie in a way that I hope you won't detect, right? My, so my lie will be crafted. Its boundaries will be crafted. It's a, it's a bad jigsaw piece, but it's, it's meant to fit in the space provided so that you won't detect it as a lie. What we have with people like Trump and his surrogates, you know, Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway, we have a, a complete disregard for the reality testing of any possible audience, right? They just do not care that what they say maps onto reality at all. because they can know they can do it with impunity. I think this is the point. I think it's not that people are willing to accept the lies, which I agree with you about. I think there's this cognitive dissonance, which, and I see it all the time, because in my in responses to tweets I make or pieces I write, that people say these aren't lies. Uh, that they they everyone lies. Are, it's well, all they, fake news. I, I, yeah, it's all fake news, and I and my reality is what I want it to be, and that 
that is what's enabling this, that you can do that in the current climate, do that with impunity because of a whole bunch of series of steps of reducing uh, the, 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 the negative effects of, of inventing realities, the fact of being able to manufacture reality successfully in a way that matches on with what people want to believe. So people will want to believe that Trump has brought back jobs if he hasn't, or people, and they'll, and they'll be convinced of that. And we're all that way. We, we all that, are that way at some level. And this is just an extreme version of that. And, and we're seeing how dangerous it is in ways that were sort of below the surface before. It's not, I think, that people are saying, I'm willing to accept him. There's a certain segment of the population who say, yeah, I know he's a liar, I know he's this, but he's going to help me one way or another. And the number of rich people I know say that, for example. But I think a large part of the population says, you know, there's just no no reality. They're all lying. And there's no, maybe, and, and what I want to believe, because I'm going to search for it on the internet, it validates my belief. Uh, and you can do that in the internet. Whatever you believe, you can find validated. And that's, again, I come, I keep coming back to that. The only, I see no counter to that, on, except to educate people on a more, much more basic level about how to tell fact from nonsense, mm. how to test ideas. And until we start educating young people who are in a world where they need that to become effective adults, if, if democracy is to survive, then I think we have huge, huge problems. There's that, that one thing, and the other is, and I'm trying to think. Of, I was trying to think of something where we could disagree, <laughs> but is I think a lot of this is based on fear. And I wrote it again in a piece I think in the New Yorker that you know I think it was Goebbels. I, I can't remember, but he said, if you want to make people do what you want, doesn't matter whether you have a democracy or dictatorship, make them afraid. Yeah. So if you can breed an innate fear in people, then they're willing to believe anything because they're. But the afraid. problem is there are. Good reasons to be afraid of Yeah, things. I know. And, we and trafficked I, 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 in fear for a good long while yeah, on this exactly. podcast. And, and, uh, and, and it would be great to come back because I have issues to some extent with the utility of focusing on, uh, on fearing certain things that I think in, on a, in a realistic level, on a daily basis from, for in everyday life in Americans, aren't, aren't worth being debilitated in fear over and should not govern our decisions about how to act as, uh, individually. Or as a nation, and I think you and I disagree a little bit at that level. I think at the fundamental level, we agree. But actually, but, but, oh, so let's let's just pivot to that. Do you have ten more minutes? Because sure, I, I'll tell, I'll I'm psychic. I'm reading your mind now, and I yeah. can tell that you are worried about the reception your New Yorker article on terrorism got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's one example. Yeah. So and, let's let's talk about that. Well, here let me talk about another piece that I was writing for the New Yorker, which I'm not because sure, there's been an editorial change there, and I think. Whether my pieces continue to appear in the same way, well, it's not not clear. I wrote a piece that that I think would have appeared, it may not, but but it's basically in the same thing that I would argue that the real fundamentalist threat, the real one, the real one we have to worry about on a daily basis that affects millions of people in this country, is the fundamentalist Christian threat, not the fundamentalist Islamic threat. If I live in a Muslim country, I happen to think that that's a then yes, it's a huge threat mm. because what they're trying to do is control hearts, minds, lives. And everything, and kill you if you, and remove you if you if you don't buy into that nonsense. But I would argue that yes, of course, there are people who are who view the West as as the enemy, and 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 would like their controlling of the hearts and minds to become broader. But their first, I would argue that their first priority is to first control the hearts and minds of people in 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 Muslim countries, and then to move beyond that. Yeah. But well, well, but, uh, but, but 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 I would argue that the real people who are 
ultimately affecting in a negative way, in a real way every day, are people like Mike Pence and the people who want to impose their religious fundamentalism on the women and the health of women and the health and the happiness of gay couples and, 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 and that really in a real way affect in every day this country. And, and so I think the average American on a daily basis, and this comes back to my article, which indeed was where I was vilified and people use that term that I'd never heard of before, which was regressive left, which in some sense I heard emanated from you or your colleagues. I, I don't know the exact history of it. My colleague and friend Majid Nawaz, who I wrote this book with on yeah. Islam, yeah. he coined that term, but neither of us directed it at you. Well, I know that. I know you didn't, but I got many other people, of course, many, but many people directed because because they claimed that anyone who did not view Islam, the claim that I get a, a lot of times is if you are not saying that Islam is the prime existential threat facing humanity at the current time, um, then you are regressive. Existential is a big word that I wouldn't. I wouldn't add here, but, but so let me just ask you a few questions because I we, we agree about a lot here and we may agree about everything. But I think at a fundamental level, we probably do. But but it's this could be our our version of a this is a moral double slit experiment yeah, where yeah, okay. you're going through as a wave, I'm I'm going through as a particle. Yeah. Well, let's just let's just take the Pence piece. So it was interesting, and this so leaving Islam and terrorism to one side for just for a second. In my hopes for impeachment, however dimly. Yeah. frame they are at the moment. I think they'll bring themselves down, by the way. I, I do have, I, I think they're going to tumble, they're going to cut their own throats. But anyway, we'll see. But implicit there is that I would prefer Pence to Trump. And now that's quite a startling thing to to realize, given how much I'm on the same page with you in my concern for Christian theocracy and or and just, or, or just the, the malign influence of Christian dogmatism in our lives on, on every level, scientifically, socially. Yeah. So... Do you not share that preference? Would you would you oh, pause I, I, if, if you yeah. had the impeachment button within reach? Would you hit it or would you pause over the prospect of Pence? No, I, I agree with you. I, I have to say I agree with you. I, I'd prefer an evil prick to a lunatic, and an, uh, and and I guess at some level that yeah. I think that might overstate it in, in Pence's case. I, I don't I don't know why. I think, he, I think he is. I think he's fundamentally evil. I do. I think he's a he's an evil man. You may know more about him than, than well, I do. Only, and he's not. He's not evil. He's evil in the sense that. That let me let me say let me as Steve Weinberg said you know religion is such that there are good people and there are bad people good people do good things bad people do bad things when good people do bad things it's religion yeah. so I don't think he hates people but it, because of his fervent religion what he ends up is doing things is wanting things that are evil right. so that's my that's the point I want to make okay so you wrote this article in in the New Yorker which yeah. suggested that the real problem is that we overreact to acts of man-made destruction, in this case terrorism, and if we could only just dial back our overreaction, we would realize that this is not as big a problem as everyone seems to think, and we wouldn't live in this much fear, and we wouldn't be fighting unnecessary wars, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't have this, this grotesque expenditure of time and energy on a problem that is it's, it's still a problem, but it's mostly a problem for other people over there in, in, in Muslim societies who are getting blown up. And it's just that the, the body count, if you look at the body count, terrorism is not a great source of mortality in America or in the West and is unlikely to become one. And we should, we should rank order our concerns more or less in line with body count. And people attacked you for that. Viciously. I've never been more viciously attacked. Yeah, I was yeah. amazed. Really? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And that's a measure of their fear. But I, I think it's also a measure of a couple of things 
you got wrong in that analysis. And the one that I think is the most important, which is even granting your analysis that people are irrationally afraid of this particular source of destruction, I think that that irrationality is so deep that you have to price that into the consequences of the next terrorist act. So for instance, the next hurricane we have that kills 3,000 people, we are just going to clean up after the hurricane and initiate our own you know, local disaster relief and move on. The next terrorist attack that's on the scale of 9-11 that kills 3,000 people in an American city could completely tank the global economy, right, given the reaction. And yeah, well, look, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Then I would argue that given how likely that, on your terms, overreaction is, we should price that in in advance, knowing that it's going to destabilize us for a decade. And then, then we have to be motivated to prevent it along those lines, based on the real cost, however irrational it is. Well, yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right that because of the, the o- overreaction to terrorism, any, any major attack like 9-11 will have a dramatic effect on the world economy. And, 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 and I argued actually after 9-11 that in some sense the terrorists won because of the fact that I have to, you know, I had to take off my shoes. The fact that my life was changed dramatically because of the fact that they'd successfully hijacked a few planes and that every person in the world now had to change the, the, the way they, they traveled at an incredible economic cost mm. was, in my opinion, giving in to that, I mean, allowing them to win because what the effect was far greater than just the horrible. And I don't want to, and once again, you know, this is what I do. I don't want to minimize the horror and the violence and the disgusting things that are done in the name of, of, in that case, in the name of some perverted view of Islam or, or maybe even not that perverted view. It's just a literal view, perhaps just like any literal view from Judaism would be perverted too, because you'd stone your children and stuff like that. But I think you're right that that it will have an effect. But I think we 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 feed into that by the minute that there's a, a ten people killed, when in the and I I guess I find it remarkable in the country which does nothing about gun control, mm. which does nothing about stopping children being shot in classrooms, in which that same year there were 345 mass killings last year, the year I wrote the piece. Uh, 345 of them and more than four people were killed by guns in yeah. that in, in a year. Okay. And, and there were two, there were two examples of, of a, a quote unquote mass killings done in the name of terrorism, naming people motivated, not because they were jealous of their name, you know, or whatever it was because they declared, declared allegiance to whatever that we should ask ourselves, we should not ignore the threats that exist. And we should not ignore the fact that there is great, there is potential, you know, for, I happen to think that a much, for going back to nuclear weapons, a much greater threat than in a, than wasting our money on ICBMs, which basically puts a cross on your country, right? You send an ICBM, we know where it came from, we destroy you. If you blew up a, uh, if you had a nuclear weapon in a canister in, a, in New York Harbor, it'd be a lot harder to know where it came from. And if you ask me, we should spend more money on that kind of defense against mm-hmm. nuclear threats. Um, so those threats are real and we should we should be thoughtfully caring about them but to to argue that every american that we should well, the real reason i wrote that argument article was in response to what trump was trying to do now the claim that we should stop syrian refugees from coming into this country yeah. that the women and children are dangerous because one or two of them might kill some people but in but these are 
that, that I find that so offensive. These are the people who are victims of violence in the name of Islam, in the most part, or in the name of greedy dictators, or you pick your choice, hmm. and that we should fear them. That's what motivated that article, and it's still what motivates me, because we benefit far more from, you know, there's a young Af woman from Afghanistan who I'm happy to say is now studying here, who you may know the story of her yeah, that we helped. Yeah, but, great story. But, but, we, but these stories are great because these are the people that are going to make America great, a lot of them. These are the people that, you know, this country has been built on refugees. And so to build the fear of people, because there might be a dozen or a hundred Americans killed because of it, is, it may sound cold-hearted to say it, is I find distorting, making the noise much more prevalent than the signal. So I, I agree with much of that, but I, I, I think there are still a few strands you're not acknowledging, which should change the calculus a little bit. Which So, for instance, I, I would say that on, on the Syrian refugee piece, it's not even or need not be the case that our country is made better by immigration. I mean, let's just say, let's, let's remain agnostic about that. Okay, yeah. We have a moral obligation to help the, the unluckiest people on earth, right? I find it intolerable that we are now so terrified of what might happen that our ability to respond to the worst cases of human suffering is, is being hampered. I mean, that's, that's, that's much worse than having to take your shoes off in the airport, that's yeah, the yeah. moral stature of our of our civilization is is being eroded. I, I never talk in moral issues. I should say that I try and avoid the moral question. I know you do, and 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 I appreciate your thoughtful views. Now. But you do. I mean, you talk about good and evil, and I guess and, I talk and, about and, ethical issues or what. Well, that's what, that's what, what, what I mean. What's, what's reason? What I, I guess I try and say what's reasonable. Right. But anyway, go on. And I know we think morality and reason are tightly mixed, so we're we're in agreement there. But anyway, yeah. sorry, go on. So we want to help these people, and we and that's just based on a recognition that. Of our common humanity. Yeah, our common humanity, and, and that it's just by dint of sheer good luck that you're not a refugee trying to get out yeah. of Syria right now. And it's yeah, Exactly. Oh, or it's your own you, child. And it's yeah. a sheer—I'm not, not sure it's good luck. It's a sheer accident that I happened to have been born in the United States, and not, you know, and it's an accident of birth, and that's why— I You did not earn it, yes. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, because if I'd been born in—you know, I grew up in Canada— Living in two countries, you learn that all this patriotism stuff is a little niopic as well. But anyway, so go on. But the issue, a few issues. One is that one difference, obviously, between a natural disaster and an act of terrorism is that the act of terrorism being an intentional act born of an ideology that is contagious, right? That these are ideas that are spreading into, into minds that are, unfortunately, these ideas are captivating enough that even psychologically normal people can be captured Absolutely. by them, right? We all are subject to, to, to irrationality. And no, but, we're, but here we're talking about, you know, martyrdom-based yeah, uh, jihadist violence, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this, this, the spreading memes that we're worried about, and there's the fact that each new terrorist attack signifies this spread and the potential for destruction at a much greater scale of the sort that you just described. So, for instance, if someone sm smuggles a shipping container with a, you know, a, Hir a Hiroshima-sized bomb into New York Harbor, we can be pretty sure at this point that it wasn't the fundamentalist Christians. This is now to divide concern about fundamentalist Christianity from jihadism. Yeah, they, no, one, one group is trying to kill us, one group is just trying to kill our soul. Okay. I mean, well, I don't know whether the soul, but kill what makes living worthwhile. I mean, the hope and dreams of you and your children. And, and there are two very different things. One is violent and awful, but one is intrinsically, I think, 
as violent. But even there, they're at a different scale. So, for instance, life under the Islamic State is quite a bit worse than Ooh, anything anything it, Mike Pence would want to, absolutely. on his worst day, would want absolutely. to implement here. Absolutely. Right. And if we lived in an Islamic State, I'd be, I'd be extreme. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I, look, I agree with you. There's no comparison, and and I think you're absolutely right that the, that 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 spread of violent craziness that is so based on the literal interpretation of a of a of, a, of an ancient book that is awful. But what we need to do, it seems to me, as a country, and I said this after 9/11, I said, you know, don't bomb Afghanistan. Just you know, find Osama bin Laden. But what we need to do is build a thousand schools in Afghanistan because we need to win the hearts and minds of of the children who aren't being right. educated. They're in madrasas. But the problem is you build schools in Afghanistan and you've got members of the Taliban throwing battery acid in the faces of little girls who are going to those schools. Yeah, I, right? I like the one we saved who, who, who had to leave school at age 11. Exactly. So, so again, by the same analysis, you want, if you're concerned about letting in the unluckiest people in the world so as to help them, you should be concerned to help them in place, right? So now the, the question Absolutely. is like, what, what, is, what should our common humanity dictate? And then, then I think you have to be sensitive to the difference between someone like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and Mike Pence. As bad well, as, I mean... I'm sensitive to the difference of individuals. No, but the, and the, and the, the, the worldviews that they would want to implement. And the worldviews, uh, what I'm not... And, and, and let me say, we need to address both, but what I'm, what I'm trying to indicate and what is unpopular is that there's no comparison between those two people as, in terms of their worldviews, except, except you can ask, who has more impact on me on a daily basis, and the and or a young woman in in Texas who can't get an abortion? Uh, who has more impact? Who should we be, who should we be worrying about in terms of immediate impact on me right now? And but but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about the other. In fact, I do think we should be spending a lot more money on. On, you know, I wrote a piece once, not in New Yorker, but Scientific American, when I had a column there saying educate women, save the world, that we need to be spending huge amounts more on the infrastructure uh, of basically trying to do what we can to make countries where people are displaced and, and in some sense have no hope for the future except for some ridiculous religious zealotry and build technology and bring and, 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 and educate women so that they can that they can that they can help their children because there's a lot of evidence that if you educate women, then they do yeah. much more to anyway. So well, we, we totally agree. We totally agree there. But let, let me just speak to the physicists in you here, because you are okay. living right now in a superposition of all possible <laughs> terrorist atrocities. Yeah. And, and some are more likely than others. And some are fairly likely. Some are, are so likely that, that you and I will both be surprised if we get out of the next decade without them happening. Right. So I would say that something on the order of September 11th happening again in our lifetime is it's it's not one in a hundred. Yeah, it's yeah, got to be. It's awful. But look, but Sam, here's the difference. My point is that you have to price that in now to your model. So I do. I do have to, and I have to say that one uh, one is virtual and one is real. So there's a virtual threat of a of a of a of a to use a physicist's language. The the the, the threat of another 9/11 is virtual. The threat of Mike Pence is real. We have to take both into account, but to focus on the virtual threat and to argue, and I hate to say it because it makes me sound cold-blooded, I do not, I do not want 3,000 people to, to, to die and to families to be displaced and, and, and cities to be wrecked. But, but if 
if another 9-11 happened, it is a, it's an awful thing. But in my mind, it's much worse if we let this country become a theocracy. Wait, 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 wait. Just the virtual real distinction, I think, is untrue. It's just one is more salient to you. I what's mean, we, happening right now? One's happening right now, one is possible. Well, I'll tell you what's happening right now. You know that there is there inte- there's intelligence about people planning yeah, that you right, and I just right. don't have access to, right? And, and right. there are plots being foiled. And I mean, yeah, how, how many people overt. are waking okay, what, up this morning trying to figure is, out how to kill people? What I want to say people? is that one's overt and one's hidden. So so Pence can go break a tie right now and openly say in the you know in in Congress he's going to break a tie so you know to to so that so that uh, lesbians and gays don't have equal rights. So he can say, so one is overt and one is one is in secret. But to somehow I guess what I'm what I I am more I frankly I guess what I'm saying when I do the calculus. In, at the moment I'm more terrified in this country and terrified is not the word because i don't get terrified i don't think of those kind of things i'm more concerned about the threat on the hearts minds lives and daily life in the immediate sense Hmm. of mike pence but it would be ridiculous not to try to explore the possible threat on the hearts minds life daily lives of people in this country of that external threat and moreover but i and like you i think I think like you, what, what, what I feel is that the best reaction to that external threat is a long-term reaction that I don't think generally military solutions work for very long or very effectively, that we need to work very, very much harder to, ch- to battle the control for hearts and minds in those countries that are generating those terrorists. It's not the terrorism, it's the cause of the terrorism that concerns me. And that uh, you know, I'm, there's an old statement, and you're going to say it's very naive, but, and it, maybe it is, but, you know, I mean, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and I'm an educator. I think ultimately it's a long term process to overcome the backward intellectual environment that fosters an, an environment based on fear and ignorance. The two go together, and it happens in this country too. We're afraid, that's the reason why people are anti science too. They're afraid of a world that may not be the world they want. Fear and ignorance go together, and the two together breed terror and bad policy. And I think we have to fight them everywhere. Yeah. Well, yeah and, you know, and I, I think, you know, so, you know, at some basic level, we disagree. I just am amazed that we accept that, there, that, we, that we just seem to be moving to accept these kind of vi- intellectual violence that's occurring from the Christian right of this country. Yeah, I don't, no, I don't think we disagree at all. We don't, we don't disagree at all on that front. And, you know, as you know, I, I wrote a, a, a short book just focused on yeah. Christianity. I mean, yeah, everyone... yeah. It, was a, it was a brilliant and important book, and, 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 and I don't want to forget it. <laughs> and I, I, have, I certainly haven't forgotten how much I don't like the aspiring theocracy of fundamentalist Christians. It's just, at the moment, I mean, it's, this is all of a piece, as you say, with misinformation, ignorance, mere fear and hope, yeah. unregulated by any rational consideration of the world we're living in and how to, to maximize human well-being. So it is a common project dealing with, with the lies of someone like Trump, the delusions of someone like Pence, the notion of martyrdom in the Muslim world. I mean, we have to, we have to debunk bad ideas in any way that we can. And um, science and a rational education is really the best tool we have in hand to do that. But as you know, it's this is a tall order because we we know yeah, we can put we could put order. you in a room with a 
a trained yeah. physicist who believes that God is uh, is tuned the universe to be exactly as it is, and it's not only a generic God; it is the Christian God, and Jesus is His Son. No, it's 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 uh, you know it sounds yeah we I think we agree it's it sounds naive it's this is a fascinating question it's I think it's these kind of discussions are important to have and what worries me for both of us is when people when you start to ask a question when you start to question what is the common meme of the group you're in and people say want to silence you or say you know what you're a scientist you shouldn't talk about politics or you're this or that that's when we have to consider so. I think we both agree, let me just summarize that nothing should be sacred. In particular, the things you and I should say shouldn't be sacred. And we should question ourselves all the time, even when we're advocating uh, what we think is right. Yeah. And and, yeah. and other and and none and, and the health of the so-called free thought groups should be to encourage free thought, to encourage discussion, not to say you know, I disagree with you. You're wrong, and and you're no longer part of my my in group. Uh, I think that's the what neither of us want. And I I and I want to use your your soapbox uh, to to try and encourage people to continue to have lively conversations of the like of the kind that I so much have enjoy having with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Lawrence. And um, I think you will agree that our conversation did not at all exhaust what is of interest in your new book. <laughs> and uh, so I, I will have a link to that on my blog where this podcast is embedded. Just tell people what your Twitter address is so they can follow you because they should. L. Kraus 1, the numeral 1, L. Kraus 1. And thanks again. And I'll come back again. It's yeah. a pleasure. Keep okay. it up, Lawrence. Okay, you too, Sam. Take, Take care. care.